Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. Of course, I am your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in and tuning out. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. As promised, everyone, we are here bright and perky, though a little croaky in the throat. And more importantly, on time with our second instalment of the exploration of Paul McCartney's 1993 album, Off the Ground. Last time we did the standard part one affair, where we went through the history of the album, its recording, its reception, its sales, as well as all the other little things Paul was up to around that time, and Linda actually. Of course, this being part two, we are now going to be eschewing all of those troublesome facts in place of meddlesome opinions as we're going to go through the album song by song track by track with me and my esteemed guest giving our thoughts as we go there's an awful lot to cover here today folks here today with so many songs having so many opinions surrounding them again this is quite a controversial album i don't really know why and so of course, as per the usual these days, I'm going to be joined by the fantabulous, toppermost, poppermost Ken Michaels, aka the podfather of Beatles New Media. You will all know him from podcasts such as Things We Said Today and the videocast Talk More Talk, as well as his widely syndicated radio broadcast Every Little Thing, which seems to be on news stations every single day. He's the boss, he's the goat, he's the walrus, and much, much more. And by this point, if you don't know who he is, you can go, yourself, really. Sadly, I've never met Ken in person, so you could say that we are truly the lovers that never were. Lol. Once again, this is all a pretty standard affair, everyone. I hope all me and the mighty Ken can do today is change a few minds out there as to the overall opinion and consensus on this album. Like I said last time, this is another McCartney album that is unfairly maligned or is relegated to the mediocre tier. And I have absolutely no idea why, as it is full of some of the best McCartney melodies going. Maybe this is down to the fact that, as per the format of this podcast, I don't know the entire McCartney discography, and I come at this with the viewpoint of none of the baggage of the 80s you know but come on people how can you think anything but highly of this album spoiler alert but yeah before we can get this episode off the ground we are going to have to ask the plugs to get out of my way so with that in mind let's go through the housekeeping right what have we got in terms of news for this week everyone Well, we've got the lyrics book coming out at the start of November 2021 and all the Get Back stuff coming out at the end of November. We'll be covering all of that as it happens. But in terms of this week, um, the only real thing that caught my eye was that Paul has joined a very esteemed, established, not so respected 
club of which Ringo Richard Starkey is also a member. Yes, folks, it was reported this week that Paul McCartney has now decided to stop signing autographs. He says he would rather have a chat with fans, which is very much in character with Paul in terms of the way he does give time to people. But yeah, he said that the act of signing autographs is something that he's always found a bit strange and odd, and that he simply doesn't want to do it anymore. Perhaps in a kind of My Brave Face music video way, he, like Ringo, is a bit upset that anything he signs automatically ends up on eBay. Um, so I can't really fault him for that, but I'm not going to lie, as someone, you know, a primo Paul McCartney content creator who doesn't have a Paul McCartney autograph, this was <sighs> disappointing news. <laughs> Am I saying that I'm ever going to be in a position where I actually meet Paul and get his autograph? Of course not, that's probably never going to happen. But what it does mean is that if I ever want to now buy a secondhand McCartney autograph, regardless of how many he's signed, how many millions of autographs he's signed in the past, it is going to bump up the value somewhat. So I'm going to have to invest even more now in getting something to frame up on the wall. But, you know, I'm sure someone at MPL or Capitol Records is listening to this right now and thinking, gosh, we better get Maka to sign something for Sam because, you know, he's doing so much for the fan base, obviously. If you've got a Paul McCartney signature, I'd love to hear your story as to how you got it. Whether you were chasing him down in the street, whether you were at a signing event, you were at a concert and you were lurking in the shadows, whatever. I would love to hear that. I'd love to read it out on the show, which brings me to our email. Yes, folks, get in contact with the show at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com and let me know your Paul McCartney autograph tales. Though that is not... The flavour of the emails this week, uh, nor the oh, a load of Twitter correspondence that I'm not even going to go into. But yeah, everyone seems to be replying to a little rant I did on the last episode about how and why McCartney should or shouldn't be overly political. I thought it was quite odd that no one likes the, the idea of Paul being as outspoken as, say, another Beatle who was very political. I definitely seem to have touched a nerve there, perhaps in a similar way that McCartney himself has touched a few nerves over the years when he's been so outspoken. Am I comparing myself to the great Paul McCartney? Yes. Yes, I am. Our first email today is from regular correspondent David Jackson. I always like to see his name pop up in the old email feed. He reads, Hi Sam, hope you're well. Just thought I would get in touch regarding your recent suggestion that Paul is clearly left-wing. I would suggest that this is far from clear, and his politics is, like most people, open to change and sometimes contradictory. It's not surprising, as Paul's personal life is permanently under the media and public microscope, and has been since his 20s. I remember a front-page article in the Sun newspaper stating that Paul was a big fan of Mrs Thatcher's government and included an interview where Paul praised that hideous woman. Hardly the clearest indication of Paul being left-wing. At least, Paul hasn't left the UK to avoid tax like many rich people, pop singers like Ringo or Lewis Hamilton, etc., though he didn't speak out when George complained of taxes for the rich in Beatles' song Taxman. Paul's green views are long-standing and commendable. However, these views are more liberal and progressive than left-wing. So, 
maybe Paul's politics are not so clear-cut. And also, maybe Paul's politics should be the topic of a future podcast. Love the show. David. Yeah, thank you so much for that one. I do like being challenged in that way, in a very non-aggressive way, which I really do appreciate. And I guess I may have been tiring with an overly large, simple brush, but um, I kind of guess like anyone who's not like overtly right-wing is kind of by de facto a little more left-wing, and maybe you're saying Paul's a little more centrist in that regard. But isn't liberal and progressive left-wing when compared to something like the Conservative Party or the Republican Party. I don't know. Um, Write in, and we'll just have a little more of a private correspondence in that regard. But, you know, someone who's always on about peace and love and animal rights and greenery and being nice to each other, that just screams left-wing politics to me. You know, you don't hear Paul decrying the rise of immigration here in the UK. You don't hear about him wanting to put up taxes. You don't hear about him wanting to sell the NHS to private American companies, that kind of thing. So I guess, I mean, obviously, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So, and you are, and you are right, you know, a lot of it is what gets put through the media and through Paul's interviews, but... I guess I'm saying from my perspective, from what I've encountered from Paul and coupled with my own worldview, I still do consider him to be on the left-hand side of things. But thank you so much for that email. It's nice to have a little bit of debate there. And yeah, maybe I do need to do an episode on Paul's politics. I'm sure everyone would love that. I'm sure that wouldn't incense anyone. And our next emailer is from Kevin Lawler, who rather like our last email actually i could have sworn was also a patreon patron but oh well and hint hint gentlemen but yeah they are both pretty similar they both touch on the same topic kevin writes hi sam just thought i would write to you about discussing paul being not overtly political as lennon on the latest show and paul feeling some angst about it in interviews all i can say is thank goodness he was not so what did we get with Lennon going political anyway? A double album slab of gonzo student politique with badly overdubbed live albums tacked on? With a badly overdubbed live album tacked on? I forgive the Zappa music as I'm a huge Zappa fan, but they really trashed the sound of that concert with bad overdubs and editing resulting in Zappa releasing it himself with titles such as a small... Uh, <laughs> A small eternity with Yoko Ono. So, given this, I'm very glad that Paul didn't take to tub thumping in the 70s, as we had some hints of what it may have sounded like via songs like Give Ireland Back to the Irish, or more recently with Freedom. I've often had a nightmare vision of some monster hybrid between wildlife and sometime in New York City. So, all in all, I am very glad that Paul kept his politics a lot more subtle than Lennon. Kevin. Again, Kevin, thank you so much for that email. Thank you so much for taking the time to write in. I really appreciate it. And, yeah, <laughs> a lot of Paul's political songs have not been in his top tier. And, of course, I would never disagree that Paul's best lyricism is his more subtle and 
metaphorical and less in your face. But I, I, I guess in that last episode, my my point was, I was annoyed when people decry Paul for it and they decry him the option, like. Paul's discography is so vast and so huge that, of course, there are going to be some political songs in there, and I think there should be, just to switch things up for a change. Now, should Off the Ground have contained so many political statements? Perhaps not. Maybe he should have spread them out a little bit more. I think I mentioned that later with Ken. But it's when people get on their high horse and say that Paul should do this or should not do that that I was really taking umbrage with. And I do agree with you that a hybrid of sometime in New York City and wildlife probably would not sound that good at all. But either way, uh, I'm glad to hear that you are a huge Zappa fan. I know my friend Tom will be very happy to hear that. But yeah, folks, do we do we not like Paul being political? I, I'd like to hear some more correspondence on this. Do you feel like I'm in the wrong here and that Paul should keep his opinions to himself? Or would you like to see Paul peel back the mask a little bit more? You know, like when he was on Howard Stern at the beginning of the pandemic talking about the wet markets and how upset he was with that whole procedure. I kind of liked it. I like it when Paul reveals a little bit of himself like that. It's very brave. It's very revealing and very open and earnest. So, yeah, write in, folks. Write into paulmcconeypod at gmail.com if you have any political McCartney opinions. You know, do you want McCartney chaining himself to trees? Do you want him storming the Capitol? Anything and everything, I want to hear it. Though if you find emails to be a bit long-winded, then you can follow us on our Twitter page for more instant access and a more direct stream of personal messages. That's at McCartneyPod. Follow us on our Twitter page, at McCartneyPod, for daily Paul or nothing updates and time-wasting. Of course, if you like to read yourself, if you want to be the reader and you would like some extra Paul or Nothing content, check out our sister blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. That's paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com for all sorts of bonus Paul or Nothing articles. It's also a feed of all the episodes currently available, so you can check that out there. Follow us on the socials. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. As you know, the YouTube page is the only place where you can access new episodes of the Paul or Nothing sister show, Mac It In Your Attic, where me and a guest dust off a few cobwebs and go through their Paul McCartney slash Beatle memorabilia collections. We've had loads of guests on the show now. We are quickly approaching 20 episodes. It doesn't quite have the traffic that the podcast has, so I'd really appreciate it if you went over to our YouTube page by typing in Paul or Paul McCartney Podcast and checking out some bonus visual Paul or Nothing content. Some people say I have a face for radio. You be the judge. Now, if you want to help out the show right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, maybe leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on. Whether it's leaving a certain number of stars, whether it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down, hopefully a thumbs up, or whether it's leaving a nice little comment saying how much you enjoy the show, all of it is unbelievably appreciated as it all goes into the algorithms. It gives us the boost we need, it uh, you know, gives us a bit more exposure to the wider world, and on top of everything, it gives me a little gooey feeling inside. It makes me feel all good, but yeah. 
If any of you could do that, that would be much appreciated. Though, if you want to help out the show more directly, more consistently, over a longer period of time, then please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon, of course, um, as I'm sure you know by now, is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself by throwing a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month. Though, it is not for naught, it is not a GoFundMe you get all sorts of exclusive Paul or Nothing content. You get early access by two days for every Paul or Nothing episode. You get to listen to that before anyone else. You get one week early access to all episodes of Macca in Your Attic. Though the best one, in my opinion, is the instant access to the Paul McCartney video feed. Like I say, all of my episodes are now done on Zoom, at least ones with guests. And the moment they are recorded, I simply snip the beginning and the end, and I upload it to the Patreon page. Now, not only do you get the entire unedited conversation, including the pre and post ramble chit chat, but you get the visuals. You get to watch the episode and watch us laugh and guffaw and make all sorts of silly faces whilst we're doing the episode. Like I say, face for radio, face for video. Only one way you can find out is by going on the Patreon. Rather ironically, in this episode, me and Ken talk about certain McCartney songs and how long they take to come out after the initial recordings, which is ironic, hot kettle black, in the sense that this episode has been up on the Patreon feed um, with the visuals since the summer of 2021. It's now late October. You could have and should have listened to it by now, only through the Patreon. Other content include bonus episodes, lost episodes, and access to all of the scripts I use for the show. We also have two new patrons this week. Massive shout out to Mitzi Carter and a massive shout out to David Stiberski, who I'm pretty sure has been a previous email correspondent in the past. Thank you both for putting where your money, where your mouth is. I really hope you are enjoying all of the bonus content available to you. Stick around, lots coming in the future. Uh, you know, as I always say, it's always very humbling and confusing for me that anyone would want to give money to this podcast, even though I do shamelessly beg for it every week. But once again, thank you so much, folks. Also, um, last week's new patron has already left our family. I'm not going to name him, <coughs> Mark Slade, uh, as well as a few others recently. But, Mark, if you are listening, I would appreciate. Knowing why you stayed with us less than a month, did you not enjoy the content? Were you just signing up so that you could download all of the bonus content and leave? Hopefully not. Um, if you could get back in touch with me, I'd really appreciate that. But before we can get on with the show, folks, it is important that we give massive shout-outs, thanks and praise to our existing loyal Patreon family, including newcomers Mitzi Carter and David Stiberski, as well as Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Tony, of whom I have regrettably neglected to add to the list for a few episodes running now, so I do apologise. Massive shout out to Nancy there. Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Broderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, my editor, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Warren Butson, and my main man, Matt Phillips. Right, everyone, 
No more puns about off the ground. Let's just dive right in. One, two, three, take it away, me. And now, everyone, it is time for me to bring on our most esteemed guest. He's the host of the widely syndicated Beatles radio show, Every Little Thing. He is the host of Primo Beatle podcast, Things We Said Today. And he's also one of the co-hosts of Beatle videocast, Talk More Talk. He's also been on this show several times before to help me discuss, amongst other things, Flowers in the Dirt and Press to Play, his two favourite albums of Solo McCartney. We'll see how he does today as we move into the 90s. You all know him. You all love him. I certainly love him. It's Ken Michaels, everyone. Ken, what's going on, my friend? Thank you for having me on, Sailor Sam. Sailor <laughs> Sam. You're the only one that still calls me that. You're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> but your listeners will get it, so... And I do love the the McCartney look of uh, like 1970. Thank you. Very maybe much. I'm amazed look or the Apple rooftop look. It, <laughs> it, it's it's perfect for you. It really is. Thanks, Mole. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I've just been trying to get these people out of out of my house, but they just keep dangling. They're hanging around. Like, oh. No. <laughs> Wasn't um, so. I think I've seen the full image. Aren't, aren't they on like a, a ski a ski lift for that? In the I've seen image. that. And I don't, I forget where exactly, but they're they're on a lift of some kind, mm. and um, I don't know whose idea it was to just have the feet. <laughs> I don't. Maybe Quentin Tarantino's. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like him. <laughs> I, 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 I need more feet in the shot, Paul. Come on, I, I need more feet. Uh. <laughs> Interesting album cover it is indeed, and of course that brings us on to our subject for today, which is of course. Off the Ground, Paul's album from 1993, a year after I was born. So we're finally now into the era of releases that I'm actually alive for. <laughs> uh, don't, mean, don't mean to make any of my audience or my guests feel particularly old there. But Ken, when did you first come across Off the Ground? What were your first impressions? And is it or ever was in your top five? It was never in my top five, but um, I, I listened to the album immediately when it was released at the time i was doing my radio show in new jersey which became titled every little thing later on mm -hmm. but you know i was on top of all the new releases as they came out and hope of deliverance was a single before the album came out and, you know so i was playing that then and sometimes if you're lucky you get an advanced copy so you get to hear it before it comes out so i was aware of the album uh, immediately uh, on its release and i grew to love it like i love most of McCartney's albums, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, um, it's so difficult sometimes to judge and to rate albums. In the case of McCartney, he's got over 30 albums to judge from. And, um, you know, I was just thinking before doing this show, as much as I'm reluctant to always comparing an album to its previous release, Flowers in the Dirt, which, as you know, is my favorite McCartney album, I love a heck of a lot more than I love Off the Ground. Although Off the Ground, once you combine all the bonus tracks, is a completely different scenario altogether. But, um, you know, you can love two different albums for different reasons. And I like really every song that's on the album Off the Ground. I just love the songs on Flowers and the Dirt more. You love every song on this album. Spoiler alert there, Ken. Oh my well, gosh. You know, in varying degrees, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, is it a 9.1 or a 9.6? You know, it's, it's definitely one of them. 
No. Um, what about the wider community, though? Because this album's got a bit of a reputation, Ken. I know that basically all of the albums I've had you want to discuss have all been albums that are at least in one way controversial. And this is the album where everyone says, oh, the B-sides are all the good songs. What's on the album's rubbish. It's, it, it's the bad album after Flowers in the Dirt, the really good one. How much of that is just dogma? All of it. <laughs> you know, it's, um, I understand what people say more with this album than any other McCartney album because he put out a flood of bonus material. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go back to the past from the 70s and 80s, McCartney was so good at putting out nine LP B-sides to singles, and I treasure them. Mm-hmm. It's such a treat to hear anything that's not on the album, whether it's good or bad, you know, just to get something new. But when you're dealing with off the ground, you've got all these CD singles with the single from the album plus three other songs. I mean, and when they're all really good songs that Mm -hmm. add so much to the album. And I know what it's like, especially in the podcast world lately. There's all this take out two songs from the album, put in two songs that are bonus tracks, that kind of stuff, which is it's it's a fun idea. I understand that. But I also think that if you, if you took some of the songs that you really like from these CD singles, if I put Long Leather Coat on there and Kicked Around No More, some of my favorite ones, and put that on the album, and I took out two songs from the album that I still like, if I took out Wine Dark Open Sea and Golden Earth Girl, and those were bonus tracks on CD singles, I might be saying, you know, those are pretty good songs. Why didn't you put that on the album? Mm-hmm. So... You know, it's easy to say that after the fact in all these years, but, you know, it was a very special time Mm -hmm. to be a McCartney fan having these CD singles, which I equate with EPs, really. EPs that had three or four songs on them, like Beatles EPs. And, um, you know, so many times McCartney has recorded enough or close to enough for a double album, Mm -hmm. i.e. Red Rose Speedway, McCartney 2, you know, you could have easily have seen Off the Ground been a double album. Mm. And I do think all these other songs are worthy of release on an album. You know, maybe not Down to the River. You know, it's not that strong a song, really. I'm no, sure but there's a lot Ken, of there, there is another podcast out there somewhere in the cosmos, in the multiverse, where they are saying that's the best song. And, you know, some, somewhere out there, there is a world where the White Album was only one disc and everyone's saying, oh, but what if it was, what if that was the double album? Yeah, you know, uh-huh. I, I, to- I totally get those kind of hy- hy- hypotheticals. But what's more interesting with this album for me is what's the archive release going to look like? Because uh, there's so much content in this period. Paul is as prolific around this time as he was saying, like 68 in Rishi Kesh, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, every now and then I go back to, and I keep this book right beside me. <laughs> I'm, surpri- I'm surprised I don't have it near my bed. But you know, eight arms to hold you. Is that a real copy of? Uh, is that a real <laughs> paperback? Oh yeah. my god! Wow, this is an original. This is not an episode of Macker in your attic, by the way, folks. This is <laughs> this is Paul or nothing. Oh. <laughs> but um, they do a great job. This is one of the best books. Probably is the best book, although it only goes up through the year two thousand. Mm-hmm. of, um, you know, giving you information about all the sessions that were done, all the different versions of certain songs, you know, the dates for when certain songs were recorded, mm-hmm. and, and concerts, every single concert that the solo Beatles have done. But at the very beginning of, uh, 
of the chapter on off the ground, there's a list here of something like 25 songs that were written, they're demos. And several of them didn't even make the album. Mm. You know, there's titles here like Magic Lamp, um, <laughs> Wedding Invitation, uh, If You Say So, Wish You Were Mine, On a Pedestal. And that's in addition to all the songs that ended up on the album and on the CD singles. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was an extremely fertile time in, in Paul's career. Although, truthfully, you could say that about most of his career. You yes. Know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like, it's like like when people say, oh, well, this is a big leap for the Beatles for this album. Well, every album was a big leap for the Beatles. So, uh, pick your poison. In the 70s, it was, it's easier to say he was more prolific because he released more stuff. But once you're getting past, give my regards to Broad Street, when the albums were once every two, three years or four years, you don't realize that, yeah, he's also doing classical music. He's, released, he's writing and recording enough for two albums, probably with most of his albums, mm -hmm. you know? So... Um, he did quite a lot of writing back then, but, uh, you know, as we've discussed on your show, you know, back in the eighties in between press to play and flowers in the dirt, you had all the, the incredible stuff with Phil Ramone mm. and David Foster plus the Russian album. You know, it wasn't like it was just those albums that he released. There's all that stuff in the middle. That's uh, interesting to explore, but, yeah, I, whenever I think of Off the Ground now, as much as I like the album a lot for what's on the album, my brain automatically races to those bonus tracks because mm -hmm. I find myself listening to those songs even more than what's on the album. And that's with liking yeah. the album a lot. I've yeah. heard sentiments like that before. And it's funny because I had a lot of hype and a lot of expectations going into this album. And funnily enough, not only do I like it way more than anyone would ever give it credit for, uh, I think it's a very solid album, especially the first side. Side one of this album is as good as any side of a McCartney album. It's solid bangers from start to finish. Mm. And oddly enough, I'm not that into the big sides, actually. I, I actually prefer what's actually made it onto the album. And that's, that's just not that's not just Sam trying to trying to be a contrarian hipster. Like long leather coat didn't really do it for me. Uh, no, no, none of the bonus tracks really have, except for like the extended cosmically conscious. But you know, that's only because uh -huh. I, I want more of that. I'd take a twenty-five minute take of that song. <laughs> I guess then you know you'd probably take a you know, the long version of Helter Skelter too for that. Oh, the, the eighteen minute one. Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> the fact that they haven't released that is is criminal. Like, just do it. Come on, guys. Well, you know, it's more the slower version, the one that's on the anthology. Yeah. You know, it's more that. Oh, it's so good. I love playing Health, I love playing Health Skelter, though, just because it's such a simple song. And you actually sound like the Beatles when, when you play it, as long mm. as you don't sing. Would you mind if I asked you something? Because you said that side one is as perfect, you know, a McCartney side as you can get. But... Mm. You know, a lot of people really cut down Biker Like an Icon. Yeah, we're, we're going to get to Biker Like an Icon, and I'm going to give it its, its uh, fair dues, but um, never have I seen a song more unfairly represented in the McCartney canon since something like Mary Had a Little Lamb, like that. Like, Biker Like an Icon's a fantastic, cool, kooky little song. It might, it might be 20 years too early 
I'm not saying he's, you know, invented a new type of rock and roll, but it's just got a different kind of vibe than I guess what people wanted back then. I guess they were hoping for a bit more of my brave face. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of my love of this album purely came from everyone was saying, oh, Bike Like an Icon's rubbish. You're not going to like it. You're going to slate the album. So uh-huh. they go with, with such low expectations. And then when you're met with songs like Mistress and Maid or I Owe It All to You or Hope of Deliverance, you're like, eh, these could go on any McCartney album from any point in his career in a good way. Not in the sense that they're the, they're generic, but just, no, this is as, as high quality as anything else he has done. And then we come on to side two, and that's where I will start to falter slightly later in this in this conversation. I do think it's a top-heavy album. It's a front-loaded album. It mm. runs out of steam. And it does have two songs that do kind of pick up the pace a little bit towards the end, that, and, it, and it needs it. But, yeah, I'm kind of caught between a rock and a hard place here, Ken, because I prefer what's on the album, but I know that I'd probably want to swap something on side B out for the B sides, but I don't know what I'd do and why. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite a delicate balance, really, because... Uh, this album is produced like no other McCartney album I've ever heard. It is ethereal and laid back and kind of subtle and quiet. It's a very quiet album, this. There's not really many moments, except for like, come on, people right at the end. But uh-huh. aside from that, it's quite acoustic and chill. It's very post-MTV. There's definitely a large presence of acoustic guitar on this album that I entirely put down to the success of the uh, MTV Unplugged album. Uh, Would you say it's closer to like a Flaming Pie in that regard? uh, Yeah. I mean, legally I haven't even got onto Flaming Pie yet, but (laughs) uh, I've noticed similarities. Yeah. I mean, we have definitely moved into the nineties now. I mean, even the leap between like, the uh, production technology between 89 and 93 is vast. Like this is a, like a digital album compared to flowers. You know, this is one that will have been pushed on CD above vinyl. You know, we are moving into that nineties territory now. Um, we're also pre anthology as well. So it's a, it's a unique yeah. little phase of the nineties. It's not post. Oh, Paul's curried all this favor with the anthology. It's no, this is just Paul doing an album. There's no pretense. There's no mm. shtick or a con. He's just releasing an album. And I honestly don't know why he didn't do better. And I mean, you and me have spoken about this dozens of times, but at the end of the day, you know, not you know, all good things can't go on forever. And I think it's more just the changing tastes of audiences rather than anything to actually do with the album. And I think a lot of modern fans, they look at the album, they see that it didn't sell very well. It didn't have any hit singles. It must be bad. Mm. And it's like there are several mitigating factors in every album that can determine whether it's good or bad. You, you can have an album that sells and gets to number one, and it's a crock of shit. So <laughs> mm. it doesn't it doesn't prove anything. And I think overall, this is an album that is maligned with false impressions. You know, you know. Well, I do believe that the uh, the charts have a lot of value to them, as I've maintained here many times. There is a pattern in the music industry that since the record buying public is made up mainly of a younger demographic, as artists get older, not just Paul McCartney, but every single, you know, iconic figure that you can think of, Elton John, Rod Stewart, Eric Clapton, as they get older, their music isn't exposed to that young audience as much. 
the amount of airplay, and I'm talking about radio, um, that gradually diminishes, you know, to the point where today, you know, a McCartney album gets very little airplay, only on one format of radio, at least in the United States. And even then it's minimal. Mm-hmm. So how do you expect records to sell if it's not being exposed as much? And you could also, it's a very good point. If that music was played, the newer music, whether you're talking about off the ground in 92 and 93 or something new from, from Paul, would younger audiences, if they got to hear that stuff, if it was massively played on the radio or ever you're listening to music, do you think it would sell as well as past albums would? And that's a very good debate if you take off your Beatle hat, you know, for a second and not show your bias. Do you think that if an album like Off the Ground was given the kind of airplay that Band on the Run, Venus and Mars, Swings at the Speed of Sound got in the 70s, getting airplay on Top 40 radio here in the States and rock radio, Mm. if it got that kind of airplay, would it do that well? But you're, you're looking at a time flowers in the dirt time and and in the 80s when paul was still getting airplay on mtv Mm. and vh1 but gradually getting less airplay on the radio and a lot of that is has to do with just getting older and radio stations feeling that their audience isn't going to care as much about these aging rock stars I mean, no wonder McCartney was, you know, <laughs> releasing the firemen on independent labels and working on classical and dance music around this period, because he, he might just be a bit despondent at this point. Like, you know what? The albums just aren't selling the way I used to. I may as well get creative and artistic. And I think that that is a, a good push that did create things like the firemen and, and, and all mm. this classical music. I think that's a great outcome. Just uh, going, going back to what you're saying about younger people listening to his, his music, though, I'd love to know if Three Imagined ever got any airplay on, on, on radio stations, whether people heard that stuff, didn't know it was Paul, and then bought the album. Like, oh, my God, I just bought a Paul McCartney album. It must have happened at least once, statistically, you know? Well, I can tell you because uh, I live in Connecticut, and there's this one radio station that I listen to in the car, and it's the format that would play a new McCartney album. It's called Triple mm-hmm. A. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a lot of new rock from artists whose music more closely resembles 70s rock and 80s rock, melodic stuff, mm-hmm. some harmonies, more very band-oriented stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, like Wilco, the Jayhawks, bands like those, the Mavericks, Dave Matthews, that kind of music. Yeah. Um, you know, And they did play Find My Way from McCartney three and they have played seize the day on that format. Okay. And they even played seize the day, the version on the imagined album as well. So, and I do believe I heard the, the Beck um, find my way as well on that format. If there's any format in the U S that would play a new McCartney or McCartney imagined McCartney three imagined, it would be that format. Interesting. But even, but even then, you know, it's still not on the prime station, still not getting the push. Right. And it does get depressing when you look at things like, okay, how many albums did Paul sell for McCartney 3? Okay, cool. He sold, he, he sold a couple of hundred thousand units and he, and, he, and, he, and he got to number two. How many did Taylor Swift sell? Even in, even in physical units, she just outstripped him. And it's like, oh, I was kind of hoping it would be like, oh, she got $10 billion, but she's only sold two albums. It's like, no, no, she's still shifted 
four million units of of plastic and vinyl and it's like no actually sam sam oh that first week when mccartney three debuted in the u.s and it debuted at number two and taylor swift was number one mccartney actually sold more physical copies than taylor swift okay it's because of all the streaming yeah that's where that's how taylor swift got to be number one hey listen she's still huge i'm not denying that and she's going to she's going to sell more overall than Paul. But initially, mm. streaming matters now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you can't you can't blame the, the, the heads of the music industry because it's a it's a flailing panicked industry as it is. And they're going to want to invest in surefire wins. You know, it's it's not like the 70s anymore where your one top act will pay for the other 150 acts on your label. It's like everyone's mm. everyone's got to start pulling their weight now. Everyone's got to get that YouTube revenue and that Spotify revenue in. And for them to invest in Paul, too many people are just going to see that as a risk, unfortunately. And that's why he mostly self-promotes now. That's mostly why he does, he, he does it all online it's the best way to do it i mean mm-hmm. the the only reason he he does the magazine interviews is because the magazines are desperate to have his face on the on the, on the front cover but he doesn't need to do it for like a, a new album he doesn't need to ab- advertise it we're all going to buy 12 copies of it anyway i only bought one <laughs> i don't one. go for all the different variations i'm sorry you know i don't care about that stuff i only care about the music no, Sorry um, to be boring, you know, <laughs> I'm, but the- I'm trying to find a, a second copy of McCartney Three behind you. I can see a CD. I'm trying to find a second one. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to. <laughs> right. With that, let's put our feet firmly on the ground. Uh, oh, sorry. As we go on to the first title, uh, the first track of the day, the, the title track. Hold on tight, everyone. This is off the ground. start this review i can happily report that this is a delightful track all over as with most mccartney albums that i'm a, a, a bit worried about there's normally a moment where i go oh it's paul i'm i'm, I'm in a safe pair of hands and the moment i heard that wow i was like this is paul man this is paul for better or worse we're here we're back I've got a brand new album and I was just so excited and you know those sonorous guitar notes were just so welcoming and warming and he's opening with a rocker he's opening with a rocker it's a soft it's a soft rock you know yeah. but he nails it effortlessly you know he's done rock and roll hard rock pop rock and now he's doing radio pop soft rock in the most brilliant way possible I mean normally this is not the kind of stuff I would ever put on but 
after a few listen throughs of, of, of this album, this is one of my favorite albums to just chill out to now. It's a, it's a really fun album just, just to kind of kick back with. And this song is is that all over, really. It's um, it's really fun. And I like that he opens with a falsetto. It reminds me of like So Bad or Girlfriend or something like that. Also, as someone who's suffered through the McCartney gruff growl from like the 89 tour and the New World tour, to hear him with like an almost whisper falsetto was a very unique kind of texture, I guess. Like it's not the kind of way you'd expect McCartney to open an album. Normally you, you expect him to go, ta-da, it's me, I'm here, Do, you know, got, got to sing, got to dance. And here he's just... <laughs> and I think that's really enticing and exciting and it lures you in. What, what, about, what about you there, Ken? I can't top what you said. I think it's a great opening track. I do love all the guitar work, mm-hmm. you know, that's on there, especially in the middle. And that's got to be Robbie McIntosh there. But um, and I love the way the song ends with the hand claps, which are throughout the song. I think uh, it's a very infectious melody. And that's, you know, the greatest strength that Paul has. I mean, I occasionally love his lyrics and all, but the melodies and the hooks and the arrangement that's what I listen to McCartney's music for most of all. And um, it is kind of unique to start off with that soft vocal delivery. That is true. But, um, you know, it kind of surprises me overall. You, you think of maybe My Brave Face where it's right in your face yeah. from the very beginning with a lot of harmonies there. And here's something else entirely different. But, yeah, I, I love the song. I've always loved the song. Um, it's a good opening track. Um, it's very important, I think, to start off an album with, with, with a strong song, and McCartney's a master at that. Yeah, and it's also a good window into what the rest of the album's going to sound like as well. It's going to have that very um, rounded edge, a very slow burn, peaceful kind of production uh, sense to it. Like For me, I think this would have done better now in 2021 than it would have done back in 1993, just... You know, if it maybe twist it more to air more towards maybe stoner rock, which I know he would never do, you know, just because that's not really his image. But I really like this kind of low ebb energy Paul. It's not him doing the song and dance. It's kind of just, but but it's not, conversely, it's not him sitting around smoking dope all day, like Red Rose Speedway, where it's a bit shambolic and all over the place. I feel like this this is literally, it's, it's just him reaching middle age and he's just calming down a bit. And yeah. I actually really enjoyed that. I was really attracted to the mature themes that were being developed on Flowers in the Dirt, like We Got Married and Distractions. And this is a whole album of that for me. This is this is middle-aged McCartney, but in the best way possible. I, I really enjoyed this song. You know, one thing I think, I feel sometimes like I keep repeating myself, but it's really important to bring this up that it seems like we're living in a time when people like the more simple stripped down production of McCartney. And if you were to compare this to Flowers in the Dirt, despite the fact that there were a lot of different producers and engineers on Flowers in the Dirt, it had a very consistent sound, but to a lot of people, it was kind of slick, you know, and very polished. There was a sheen on, on Flowers in the Dirt. And some fans are these days turned off by that. Mm. I'm not, I like it. But Off the Ground has much more of back-to-basics production. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a band in the studio, no frills, 
this is what we sound like. And McCartney even said around the time that you know, some of the songs are one take and it had more of a live band feel. And maybe because I've heard Paul say that, I think of the album that way. But I, under, I understand where he's coming from. And I think production wise, and I think, you know, I'm not, I will never, ever say production is more important than the songs. The songs are the most important thing, first of all. But I have noticed from, you know, just reactions that, I, that I've gotten from my work, people who write to me, production is a very big thing to Beatle fans out there. They like a certain sound. Mm -hmm. they, a lot of fans don't like when Paul tries to sound modern or work with producers of the time. Mm -hmm. They'd rather that he go back to something more like Flaming Pie or Chaos and Creation in the Backyard or Off the Ground. Off the Ground is kind of similar in that regard, you know, except that Off the Ground I think of as, as a band album because he's working with the same musicians all the time. I would love to see a triple set of Off the Ground, Flaming Pie and Chaos and Creation because those are three albums that yeah. never get lumped in the same category together at all. You've picked up on something quite astute there, Ken. I can't wait to uh, hear those albums fully and put together the thesis. Well, you know, when I ask fans what their favourite McCartney albums are, if, if they mention Flaming Pie there's a very good chance they're going to say chaos and creation at the same time. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're not going to say new. <laughs> they're not going to say driving rain. It's, it's just, you know, production seems to make a difference to some people, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not as big a deal for me. I like when Paul dabbles and does different things and comes up with different sounds and works with different producers. It helps to make his music, more spread out, not so formulaic. Mm -hmm. You know, if every single album sounded like Flaming Pie, as much as I would love the songs, you know, I might start getting a little bit bored. But he, he mixes it up by working with different people. I think he's also quite uh, forgiving in a way t for his fans, in the sense that he does choose to create different monikers, like... At this point, you know, um, during the production of Off, Off the Ground, we are going to see the birth of the fireman. And the fact that, you know, he really distances himself from the weirder aspects of his career, it does it does allow the fan base to kind of have, no, no, I'm not going to look at the classical, I'm not going to look at the dance stuff or the techno stuff. There, Here's the McCartney canon, and I can just enjoy whatever little aspects I want from it. Because, you know, his his catalogue is so expansive that you can you can chop it up any, any which way you want, and it's still going to be incredible. Well, to me, I always look at, you know, a person is their resume. Everything that you've done is what makes you who you are. And the same person that did Off the Ground also did Liverpool Oratorio and did Mary Had a Little Lamb. You know, it's the same guy doing all of that. And so you look at it as a whole, hopefully, or, you know, you, you divide it all up. But I don't necessarily agree that Paul should do that. Really, I, I've noticed that when he does try to do something more of an experimental nature, like the stuff on Press to Play, Talk More Talk, Put It a Little Head, or Driving Rain, like She's Given Up Talking, or Tiny Bubble, or you know any of those songs, a lot of fans don't like that. So sometimes Paul just puts that experimental stuff on the side and makes that B-side material, like Hang Glide. Yes. For example, mm. you know, or some of the stuff 
from chaos and creation, like growing up, falling down, something like that, that would be less accepted if it was on the actual albums. So, Conversely, though, Ken, he's he he's never been brave enough live to throw in a fireman song. Like maybe he'll do he'll sing for, the changes. See, I was going to say sing sing the changes, but and, you you know what you know what I mean though. It's, it's not like yeah. in a in a concert there'll be a fireman song followed by celebration, but followed by Christian pop. You know you, you know what I mean. Like really go for it. Oh. That would yeah, be interesting. And then I want I want the frog song in there as well. I want <laughs> something for the kids. I want I want the No Meat Mondays rap to open up the first uh, encore. Yeah. Mondays. No meat. I would you know, I'd love for him to do all of McCartney too in concert, you know? I don't oh, think that's going to happen. <laughs> Getting into because obviously, obviously that's kind of a, a a recent phenomenon past kind of 20 years these legacy artists touring with classic albums paul's got too many you couldn't you couldn't and you would have to be banned on the run but then it has to be wings and wings doesn't exist and never will exist anymore so it would have to be a solo one and then paul will panic because he'll just think no one knows this solo record enough i mean him touring mccartney 3 would have been excellent if you know the world hadn't collapsed you know so you think he's he's that um, insecure about his solo work that he wouldn't even do one album all the way through? He would he would do Pepper all the way through. He would do Revolver all the way through in a heartbeat, Ken. But if you ask him to sit down and, you know, maybe Tug of War, maybe Tug of War he'd do. But I, I think he'd be too worried about that one fan who hasn't been to one of his concerts before, who hasn't got to see the Hey Jude and the fireworks from Live and Let Die and stuff. Well, you can do one complete album and then do your classic stuff. Hmm. You know, Beatles and Solo. He oh, could do that. Like, the encore is just uh, classical stuff or, or like, you know, the encore is only <laughs> firemen. I mean... The opening act is pretty much the fireman at most McCartney concerts now, like because he doesn't have an opening act. They just play his back catalogue as you get, you know, taking your seats. And most of it is just fireman stuff or twin freak stuff. Yeah. Which I love hearing before the concert. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> like, twin freaks, some of the only ways you're going to hear some nice, ob- obscure little moments, you know? Uh, mm. They played Secret Friend when I saw him at the, o- the O2. I could have cried, Ken. I could have cried. I was like... I'm with a hundred million other people listening to Secret Friend. That's incredible. But would you have done if he did that song live in concert, Secret Friend? Would you be in a coma? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Just... At least he's done Temporary Secretary, so, you know. Yeah, he's done Coming Up, Temporary Secretary, and that's about it from that album. There's so many others he could have done. There's so many others he could have done. But you mentioned The Fireman. He, he has done Highway live. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's two songs, really, from Electric Arguments. That will be something I will surely come across at some point in the future. But we're an hour in, Ken, and we're only on song two. So (laughs) let's crack on with Looking for Changes.
this uh, this was the very first song that came with a, a pre-attached label that I couldn't escape. I knew going in that this was the animal rides, the animal activism, the animal testing anthem. And I heard it was going to be, be preachy and in your face. And like most McCartney songs with baggage, it just turned out to be untrue. And I found this to be quite a refreshingly unboring, catchy political tune. What, what do you think? I think so too. I don't. I don't get offended by Paul stating how he feels about animal rights and you know he makes a very good point throughout the song I mean who wants to see monkeys being forced to smoke cigarettes you know and uh, it's it's uh, it talks about the cruelty that's done to animals and is it really that necessary for it to be done and it's a very important issue as it was to Linda as well and then he carried that theme over with long leather coat mm. so um yeah, it's a good rocker, and if anything, it kind of is maybe a little too short. I wish it could have gone on a little bit longer. It is short, isn't it? Like, this yeah. is an album of songs where a lot of these songs could have 30 seconds trimmed off them, and yet, look, looking for changes, it's under three minutes. It's it's a real running run and gun, mm. and I thought that there were a lot of similarities between this and, like, The White-Coated Man, for example, Linda's oh, song. yeah. yeah. Mm. They'd, they'd be a very good pair together. But just if anyone didn't think this song may not have had any impact, uh, since 2013, it is illegal to sell animal-tested products here in Europe. So, hey, you know, at least we're not at the same point where we were when this song was being recorded. So, hey, a bit of good news in 2021. Didn't, mm. didn't, didn't hurt anyone. Although, when it comes to people not wanting their artists to have opinions on things... Like, you know, when you hear a bigot say something like, oh, I don't mind homosexuality as long as they keep it in their house. As long as I don't mind Paul being political as long as he doesn't do it at a concert. You know, it's like, no, as you said, Ken, the same man who did classical and defilement, it's the same guy. And mm. this is the same guy who has thoughts and opinions on things. And if you don't want to hear them, you don't have to go to the concert because he's going to tell you. And... He's clearly got a conscience. He, he clearly knows that he's got this incredible platform that he can do good with. Mm. And he couldn't be like Lennon, just go home and live for five years. He's like, no, no, I've got to be out there. I've got to do philanthropy and make music and make everyone happy. Because that, that, that's all Paul wants to do is to, is to make the world a better place. And in his own tiny little way, I think he did that with this song, mostly through the lyrics uh, this is a McCartney song where I actually put the lyrics above the melody. Like, this is a really, really good song in terms of just breaking down the words. And starting with the opening one, I don't think there's a, a more graphic and horrific McCartney image than, I saw a cat with a machine in his brain. The man beside him said he didn't feel any pain. I said I'd like to see him take out that machine and stick it in his own brain. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? That's Paul being reactionary aggressive? How cool is that? Like, yeah. Paul's like, not only do I not like you, I want, fuck you. Like, like you'd think McConaughey would go, and then we want all the medical doctors to give up their job and join in peace and love with us. <laughs> no, Paul's breaking into those, to those animal testing labs and he's freeing the animals with this song. I think it's got real chutzpah to it. I like to see that he's using his excellent use of descriptive, colorful imagery in a dark mm. way, like it's not, uh, you know, the 
the the the little rabbit's got a lovely coat that shines in the sun. It's no, no, no. This this is awful. This is this is really bad. And yet he does it all with a quite upbeat rhythm, with an upbeat melody, and it's a wonderful bit bit of dissonance in in his in, in his discography. Something else I noticed, and I literally only noticed a, a couple of minutes before we started. Uh, he says the word, "You know what I mean." And mm-hmm. obviously that goes all the way back to I saw her standing there. Right. And I just thought, you know, this time it's a little bit less ambiguous than than before. We we know what he means this time. Right. And he, I think he's kind of saying, you know, this, I'm not reading too much into it again here, Sam, but there was the, you know what I mean, back when I was a young lad and it was kind of fun, but we're not having fun anymore. We're trying to do something serious here. And whether he did it intentionally or not, uh, I think there was a little link there. Also, I, I like the phrase looking for changes because even if you're not particularly listening to the song and you don't know it's about animal testing, it's still quite a universal sentiment, isn't it? Everyone's looking for changes, you know? Yes. And uh, even if you're not particularly paying attention, hopefully it might still hook you with that catchy rhythm, you know? Yeah. I'm agreeing with everything that you're saying here, but um, you know, one thing that I do like in the way that McCartney handles this is that, you, you know, you go and see him in concert at this time. He does the one song. There's a video that he shows at the mm-hmm. same time where you see animal testing and how cruel it all is. And then he makes a little speech and he doesn't belabor the point. He doesn't, it's not a full concert all about this one issue. Mm-hmm. He says, if you're interested, please do something about it. And he's got a program, a tour program there, and there's information about it in there. Same thing with supporting Friends of the Earth, the environmental group mm-hmm. at that time. He's not going to spend the whole concert hitting you over the head talking about these issues. He does it for a few minutes, then move on. Yeah. And that way he gets his point across. It's a very important issue to him as it was to Linda. So I admire him for that. And actually, you know, when I was a teenager, way back when, I used to hate when musicians went political. And I used to have the same attitude that some people have, you know, keep that to yourself, you're an entertainer. These days, I think the exact opposite. I admire when musicians or performers of any kind speak, out, speak their own mind, because in a way, they're risking their popularity, Ken, when Paul spoke about the wet markets at the start of COVID, I thought this could be the end of McCartney, like legitimately here. He could get cancelled from statements like that. And it's just, he just put himself out there. It is brave. You're right. You know, I admire people that do that. It doesn't matter whether I agree with their politics or not. There are plenty of musicians out there whose politics I don't agree with. But if I like their music, that doesn't change. Mm. You know, I don't I don't uh, let one thing affect the other. I know some some fans do, but I'm not that way. Oh, no. I mean, if you can't separate art from artists, then don't watch any movie made in the last hundred years. Don't read any book that's been written in the past 500 years because no one's perfect. Literally, no one's perfect. Just like I admire John for his political stances in the 70s. Yeah. You know? No, but uh, Ken, you get... Every day on Facebook, oh, well, what John Lennon says is rubbish because he hit his wife. And it's like, that's not that's not how morality works. That's not how human behavior works. I think you're oversimplifying things here. Like if, if mm. you want to, you know, I might be a bit trite when I say, you know, Lennon towards the end was a wife beating crackhead. But 
that's <laughs> it, it it still does does mean that anything that wife beating crackhead did or did not do still isn't culturally significant like yeah but i don't believe he was that <laughs> no and and i i am yeah. being flippant to make a point but yeah i think i think some people worry that there's this kind of uh, it's like a slippery slope like oh well if we if we accept that john lennon put a toilet seat around his head then oh society is going to collapse ken yeah. <laughs> people are just worried about stuff that isn't actually going to affect anything um just one last thing before we move on to the next song we do need to point out that mccartney swears in this song as well the bastard laughed his head off and you know I guess some people were hoping that that would be the biggest swear word he would use in these sessions, but uh, <laughs> as we'll no. find out in a in a later B sides episode, he drops the f bomb, ladies and gentlemen, which uh, quite a lot. Yeah, did um did did that cause a fuss in the media or anything at at the time? Because like it wasn't a big song or anything. It was briefly, but you know, radio stations weren't playing it for that reason. It was just to give him some publicity at the time i think that was part of the reason but i'm sure that the song you're referring to it was important what paul was saying in the song to him again yeah again yeah. i mean well yeah that's, that's a very good point it we've wasn't got, just for shock value you know? I know we've got animal activism in these sessions we've got political comment commentary he's uh he's not sitting back as much as he used to any, any anymore he's actually getting quite stuck in it's uh quite interesting mm. on to song number three now and I just know that this title was bitingly used as a pun in many negative a review, you know, saying things like, oh, please do give us hope from deliverance from this album, blah, blah, blah. This is Hope of Deliverance. I will always be hoping, hoping You will always be holding, holding my heart in your hand I will understand I will understand someday, one day, you will understand always, always from now until then, when it will be right, I don't know what it will be like, I don't know, we live in hope of deliverance from the Folks, this is meant to be a chronological podcast, as you all know, but I was at a vinyl fair, or a vinyl shop, I can't remember which one, but I I found a copy of the Steve Sanderson Deliverance, which is the remix of this, uh, a 12-inch. On the one side, you get Deliverance, and then on the B side, you get Hope of Deliverance. And that's how I first heard this song, and... Maybe it's because I, I, I heard it after two really cool dance numbers or because I heard it outside of the context of the album, but I was just smitten with it immediately. Like, that, that, a lot of this album has fantastic openings to all of these songs and just that mm. flurry of those jing 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 Sold. I'm sold. I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride. Let's crack on with this. This is going to be a yeah. fun time. It is that immediately fun. It's just a joyous arrangement like it's not um i'm not going to say it's full on Lat latina or uh, mediterranean but there's a certain unique kind of sanferi and sparkle flair with this one 
and there are just so many McCartney flourishes that that just give it a, a real air to it. You know, it, it, it just flows, this song, you know, it just rolls off the tongue and you get Wixy accordion, you get claves, you get a gorgeous guitar solo. And you know what, Ken? I'm just enjoying how well paced this album's been so far. We've had three upbeat numbers, no silly mm. love songs, no piano no, nothing particularly self-indulgent or wanky. We've just had three fun pop songs, and that's really quite refreshing. And just to say, you know, Paul isn't Django Reinhardt or Tommy Emmanuel or anything, but he makes the acoustic guitar really fun in this song. Um, yeah, um, this is one so. of the highlights for me, yeah. It is very Latin-esque, mm. to me anyway. And they even um, use three... Latin percussionists in this song, and um, I love the fact that the um, that guitar solo in there the the um, the notes are doubled to guitar lines at the same time Mm. gives it a nice feel to it. Really is is catchy as hell. A phrase I use quite often when it comes to McCartney. And then there's the whole message of you know we live in hope of deliverance from the darkness that surrounds us. You do need songs of hope to get you through in life. And certainly with everything that happened in the last year and a half, this is a song that I was posting once in a while on Facebook to get people through these dark times. You need songs like that. I think they're very important uh, to have in times of need like that. So, um, yeah, I've, I've always liked it. It's... it's um, you know, I've said this quite often, but these are one of those songs like My Brave Face that would have easily been a hit in the 70s mm-hmm. when McCartney was been given a lot of airplay. So, yeah, I love it. It's it's short and sweet. You know, it's it. You know, I said looking for change is a little too short, but Hope of Deliverance is just right. Yeah. In its it time is. length. Yeah. It's very complete in its three minutes. <laughs> We also get some of my favourite McCartney vocalizations just towards the end when it's like hope of deliverance, be doo be doo, <laughs> just mm. just like throwing throwing those little doobie doos in there. Like again, yeah. that's just magic, pure pure McCartney for me. Oddly enough, as well, Ken, this is by far the most streamed song from this album on Spotify. So I imagine it's got to be some sort of algorithm or playlist that has exposed this song to a wider audience i mean it would it would it would be hilarious to think that the album that that revived mccartney's career with the youth of today would be off the ground from 1993 mm. that really would be funny well it could be because of the message you know we yeah. need songs like hope of deliverance but that particular song while it wasn't a a big hit here in the u.s it was a hit in a lot of european countries mm-hmm and once in a while, like I know when Paul has played in Spain, he'll pull it out. I'm pretty sure it was a top oh, 10 hit there. Interesting. And not that long ago, I read that this album did very well in Germany. Yeah. I don't know why uh, particularly, but um, you know, if you take a look at the charts, and as much as I know Wikipedia can have some errors, if you go online and look at um, the Beatles and their solo works and where they charted. It's pretty good information there, and you'd be surprised how certain songs did fairly well in other countries where it didn't do that well in yours. Or like there's a lot of McCartney songs that that charted high in, in your country that didn't over here 
or, or we're singles in your country that we're in singles here. Something, so. Ken, that I'd love to do with this podcast is to discuss the US-UK-centric uh, way we discuss the Beatles and the solo Beatles, because, I mean, there's that great bit of uh, text on the back of the Put It There single when Paul's mm-hmm. like, we played Put It There in France and everyone was dancing in the aisles. It's like, yeah, because... In England, we don't hear about what's a big hit in Yugoslavia or Czechoslovakia. Sorry, uh-huh. um, the Czech Republic, I should say. Sorry, people from the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Um, but it's very interesting to think that songs like this could have been big somewhere and not big elsewhere. What did they get that the other audience didn't? What are the cultural standpoints that indicate that this song's going to do well somewhere else? I'm glad that that song has done well, though. Top 10 in Spain, that makes sense. That does make sense. Why is it? Why is it? Flowers in the Dirt was a number one album in the UK, and it only went to twenty one in the US. It, it didn't even break the top twenty, did it? That it it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. <laughs> and off the ground was uh, it went to number five in the UK and fifteen in the US. Why the big difference there? That's I don't so, get it. So I don't strange. understand it. <laughs> it's two different two different markets. Like Egypt Station and New, it's a one position difference every time. Yeah. It's like it's either number one have here and number two there, or number two here and number one there. Right. But you know what? Just to go off off topic slightly. Did the whole McCartney gaming the system thing happen with New as well? Like him cheating his way to the number one. Uh, don't say cheating. Don't say cheating. <laughs> you know, I don't want to have to defend this as I've done on on my podcast here. You know, because he's not doing anything that nobody else could do. <laughs> oh, but that no, but that's like the same argument you could say if you're a tax avoider. I, I am using the legal channels to put my money in the Cayman Islands. Okay, <laughs> you know, we just said about McCartney and Taylor Swift. Do you think it's fair that Taylor Swift had a number one album over McCartney when most of that came from streaming, or would you say that? it's a more fair indication of what the public wants based on physical sales. Yeah. You know, there's, it's, um, it's a very debatable thing. And I also do maintain that while I certainly know, because I'm in those circles, those people that would buy multiple copies of everything McCartney does and colored vinyl and colored CDs and all that, there's still plenty of people like myself who really only care about getting it once or getting all the songs in their totality. So there's plenty of people who are like that that only bought one copy too at the same time. So, you know, it's, it's, I understand what you're saying, but like I had said earlier, when you're dealing with a time like the seventies and eighties, when someone like McCartney was given airplay Mm. and the, the buying public had a choice, they got to hear it and it was unleashed on them. It got fair airplay and what you saw in the charts was a much more accurate indication of what the public thought. Then how do you gauge an album that's out today that doesn't get that kind of exposure? Mm. You know, what do you have to do to make the sales increase? I know that it's partly done for that, all these different configurations. But at the same time, other artists do it too. You know, um, yeah. who was it? It, it, was, uh, it was Prince. Prince was the first artist who included the sales of his CDs with his ticket sales. And that affected where they 
where his albums were on the charts. And this is going back to, I think it was 2006. Sorry, how does that work? Sorry, so if you sell a ticket to a show, do you, you include an album with the ticket? Hitting, yep. Yeah, he yeah. was doing that. He was the first artist to do that. And that affected where it appeared on the charts. McCartney never did that. Mm. He never did that until, uh, I, well, Egypt Station, he did that. So you're talking about 2018. All those years, he could have done that. He never did. So... You know, Ken, Ken, you've 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 shut me down there, my friend. <laughs> I I posited an argument and you argued it back excellently. No, no, I've got nothing to say there. I've got nothing to say and back. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that you know, being the big fan you are of BTS, their last album debuted at number one, and they put out four versions of the same album with different covers. No differences in the music. But that's part of the reason why it went to number one. And it counts as a number one album. There was a country artist. <laughs> I'm going on a tirade. You're doing this to me. You're, did you do this to me? All the you know I want this as well. You know I want this. <laughs> uh, there's a country artist. I'm trying to remember who it was. Before we had the pandemic, he released a new album. And he was about to go on tour. And the tour included the, the CD. Uh, if you bought a ticket, you got the CD too. And his album debuted at number one. And because of the pandemic, the tour was canceled. But he still had a number one album. So at least with McCartney, the sales are legitimate, even if you know some fans, like the ones we know that are in my podcast shows, some of them will buy several copies. But still, no one's being forced to do that. And, you know, I question, I think, um, I could be wrong here. They say for every thousand streams, that's the equivalent of one physical copy. Yeah. So that means that you have to get a lot of streams mm. for your album to chart high. But a lot of albums that are on the charts are there mainly from the streaming and not from physical sales. Do you, do you think that's fair? Everyone, you know, yeah. we could debate this thing forever, but... Mm. I mean, what the real clever thing is, is that Paul is, he's sticking his, his, his toe in the world of streaming a little more deeply than I think any of us would have expected. Mm. And I'm very happy that he's in bed with Spotify right now because kids are not going to go out there and randomly buy a copy of McCartney 3 and listen to the music. They're going to have to accidentally discover it in, in the way that most people get into anything. And it's not mm. going to be through going to a discotheque or a youth club and listening to music. It's not going to be through swapping albums with your friends. It's going to be going type, typing in, in Spotify, uh, you know, work playlist, re relaxation playlist, go to bed playlist. Mm. And if you can get on um, in, in, into any of that, you have got new, you've got infinite new fans. I think it's smart. It's definitely smart. Stick it out of my back, back, back pocket. <laughs> Even if it doesn't actually get that many downloads, it'll still be on the front page of Spotify for a few hours. And that could be enough to get a hundred new people in, into him. And that's so many sales, so many tickets, so many downloads. And I think his, his uh, position on streaming and that kind of thing is quite reflective of like the fireman, you know, like when he was releasing stuff with like independent labels, modern labels and big companies aren't, aren't keeping up. Paul is trying to keep up by himself. Hmm. That is admirable. Uh, it's not fair, but it's admirable. <laughs> no, I agree with everything you're saying. And think about all the new Beatle fans we have because of Spotify. 
and streaming oh, services. Come so, on, like here comes the sun has probably lifted more weight in the past ten years than any other Beatles song because it's on every single feel good, happy summer playlist. playlist. Yep, and you, and it'll be like the first song as well. Mm. Like and like sun is in the title. Like <laughs> on a sunny day, you're gonna you're gonna put put, put it on. I mean, if there's a an aeroplane playlist, I I hope to God that flying's not on it. Uh, <laughs> just just as you as you take it off. <laughs> well, you could you could put flying to my home on there. I wouldn't mind. Yes, there we go. There we yeah. are. Yeah, let's let let's go on to song number four. Let's see how much we can get done today. <laughs> uh, Why don't we just stick to the songs for now? <laughs> for now, anyway. In Pewter Position, we have the first of two McCartney-McManus compositions that we're going to talk about here today. Get your bed sheets ready, everyone. This is Mistress and Maid. She said, come in, my dear, you're looking tired tonight. As you remember from Flowers in the Dirt, I was certainly less than enthused by those collaborations that they did together. And yet, oddly enough, I'm finding myself more drawn to the leftovers from those sessions in terms of the stuff that made it onto Costello's solo albums and what made it onto this album. Because for me, Mistress of Made is the best song of the album so far by a country mile. Like, this is so... It's resonant. It's very memorable. Uh, it's it's such a compelling narrative to compare to anything that's been on the album so far. And you know we're we're dealing with a proper song. There, there's no whiffle. There's no poppiness here. And it's McCartney taking a topic seriously. And like I said earlier, this is an album that's showing like mature themes and growth. And he gets to do that through Costello here. He gets to you know look at. A relationship that's gone bad for once. It's not we got married or distractions with the phone on the wall. This is, yeah, actually, it it didn't go well at all. And for Paul to be able to tell that with just as much kind of grace and vibrancy and colourfulness in his language just shows that he only needs Casella to be there to kind of nudge him in the right direction. But that being said, I do kind of feel having listened to both the cassette demo and the 2017 archive edition of this song that it was better off without Costello. It's better off being solely in Paul's hands. The backing vocals on this track as well completely made the need for Costello completely irrelevant. Hamish does an absolutely brilliant job on this song being being the kind of counterpoint for, for uh, Paul here. But 
I'm just so uh, the song excites me, Ken. The idea that Paul's talking about a failed relationship, a sexually unsatisfied woman, which is so risque for me. Mm. It's just so in contrast to everything you would expect from a Paul a Paul McCartney song that I just I just find that really compelling. And there's so much beautiful language as well. Like the choice of words in this, like you know, when he uses um every appealing soubrette. So yeah, like you, you know when Paul was like, I need to write a song with peradventure in it, and then he came <laughs> up with English tea. This feels like I need to write a song with soubrette in it. Let's see what I can do, you know. Well, how do you know that's not Elvis's word? Yeah, soubrette. Yeah. No, it could it it could be. It could be. But uh yeah, for me, this is exactly what I wanted from the last album. Yeah, well, I think that the two of them really did fantastic work together. And um while on the one hand, I think Paul McCartney doesn't need any collaborator to put out some of the greatest music ever. I do like when he collaborates, like with Elvis, like with Eric Stewart, mm-hmm. like with Danny Lane. I think when it comes to Elvis Costello, there's so much more depth in the lyrics. And I'm sure some of it are some of the lyrics are Paul's and some are Elvis's. But I also love the sound. It's what you just said about the backing vocals from Paul. I understand because I love the studio recording of this song. But yet at the same time, I love that whole disc of the the um, the demos of Paul and Elvis and nobody else and acoustic guitars and hearing them harmony harmonized together. There is something that's more interesting when you've got two completely different vocals there singing mm-hmm. together. Not saying it's better, but songs have a completely different vibe when it's just acoustic demos and. Paul and Elvis sounded fantastic on on those. It's a really good song. I don't understand what it is about Paul and Elvis. They wrote a lot of songs that were in either three, four, or six, eight time, three beats in a measure. (laughs) And what is it about that? Because even um, the lovers that never were are that way, right? Yeah, that kind of sound. It's like a waltz. They're able to do that. But um, it's a very strong song and very different um, lyrically with the subject matter, like you said. And um, I, I wish they continued and did more work together. They, they really should have. At least just to write songs together. Like, we'll write a bunch of songs and then we'll go off and not record them together. <laughs> and I actually like the whole format of a little bit on your album, a little bit on my album, instead of doing an entire album together. Although I would have loved that too. Mm. But um, yeah, that way it was, they're like teasers there. You know, I'm sure that there are some fans that don't care as much for Elvis Costello. So maybe not overload the fans with too much of Elvis on his albums. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of Elvis's fans don't care for McCartney or think he's too, mm. too pop for them. So, but I like how they shared songs on each other's albums. Definitely. But I would I would definitely in a heartbeat welcome the two of them writing together again. And Eric Stewart too. Yes. <laughs> I always sneak Eric Stewart into the conversation. Um just going back to what you were saying about the waltz, I got very Beatlesque vibes from that moment. You know when it starts doing the whole being for the benefit of Mr. Kite kind of spiel like mm that kind of going down the circus rabbit hole feel. Like I definitely got some peppery vibes from this song and obviously Costello being the Beatle fan that he is, it's probably very, very hard for him not to write in a Beatle-esque style when he's sat opposite a Beatle. Mm. You know, 
I can I, I can definitely forgive him for that. Uh, Ken, I'm not going to lie. You could really apply the next title to to me and you actually, because in terms of Beatles podcasting, I do owe it all to you. <laughs> uh, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Last night you helped me through Took me to the lover's zone I saw their images Projected on a wall of stone I stood inside the Egyptian temples I looked into eternal gardens Lay on the shores of distant islands Folks, another interesting song here. We start off with a very, very unique uh, 20 second prelude. And it really reminded me less of like a link track and something more like, you know, like opening station. Just like, uh, here's, here's just some, here's a mood piece. Here's just some ethereal train sounds to get you in, into the into the uh, headset you need for this song. And Paul's really good at that. He gets you exactly in the right mindset you need to uh, get in for the song. And I hate to repeat myself as well, Ken, but as soon as I heard that, it's Paul, it's Paul. <laughs> That's exactly what you want. It's 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 him. You know, it's very much like a kind of something like from a long a long-tailed winter bird, where you can just you hear the riff, you hear the way the notes are being played, and you know that's a McCartney riff. It's mm. not a Denny Lane riff. It's not an Eric Stewart one or an Elvis Costello one. That's a Paul McCartney riff he's playing there. And yeah, I don't want to say eye-catching, but this song is very ear-catching. It's overflowing with succulent McCartney melodies. There are so many to uh, to uh, pour over here. And every part of the song is perfectly mixed, produced and played. The guitar tone is probably my favourite on the album. Like, that solo... Oh, it's heavenly i love the ghostly whispered backing vocals as the song closes out (laughs) blair's uh cymbals in this and the splash are so crisp in the mix like that like the sound the sound you get in this song it's so varied we get some little backwards guitar towards the end and i'm sure you can hear a uh, a tabla or um, a sitar ringing out there at one point as well. You d- go, go, go back. Yeah, I'll Get have to. Good pair of earphones. You can definitely hear a little bit of sitar at one point in the song. Overall, though, the thing that I love about about this song, Ken, it's the sentiment. I owe it all to you. What a brilliantly mature uh, expression of love. It, it, it's not. You've got big boobs, and I think you're pretty. It's it's <laughs> it's everything in my life is because of you and if I don't have you I literally don't have anything and you'd think McCartney would have run out of ways to express sentiment to Linda and Mm. it's clear we're not even getting started with songs like this you know yeah 
No, I agree with you. I think when this album came out, apart from Hope of Deliverance, which was always in my head, I owe it all to you as the one that stuck out over and over and over. I'm a real sucker for love songs. Yes. And, you know, McCartney is, you know, you could say he's the best at them. Although I, John and George have written some really great love songs too. But um, yeah, I love the whole arrangement of this. And and like you were saying, the that guitar line, and then at the very end, you, you hear the phrase, I owe it all to you. Mixing that into the song, it just it adds a lot to it. The whole imagery of, you know, Egyptian temples and all that. Oh, yeah, all the yeah, beautiful yeah. things in, in the world. Yeah. And yet, despite all this beauty, you know, all the good things in my life I owe to you. Kind of a sentiment. I love the lyrics of the song, too. It's really wonderful. Bit disappointed that in the very beginning, uh, Paul was performing this with his band, but he didn't do it on tour. I wish yeah. he had continued with that. He's written so many great love songs and and the majority of them at this point are not that well known <laughs> aside from, you know, the ones in the Beatles and my love, mm-hmm. you know, and this, this is a real absolute gem, everything about it, you know, song is always more important than the production, but this was produced extremely well and arranged really well. And yeah, like you mm-hmm. said, that, it, that acoustic guitar intro it just works so well and building <laughs> the melody around yeah. that. And just like, and then you got, and then, and then the vocal melody is just really, really catchy as well. And then that, that bum, 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 ah, it, you, you are, you are right. If you have to pick a, a song on this album, that is, you, you have to point out Ben Mendelssohn's production. No, it's, no, it's not Ben Mendelssohn. That's the actor. Julian. Julian. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. No, um, and uh, and uh, a bad guy Australian actor also uh, produced uh, off the ground, and later went on to play Krennic in Star Wars. Uh, it's a small role. Uh, okay, didn't know. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That'd be funny. When you do uh, a little research on Julian Mendelssohn, you'll find that he he produced uh, the Pet Shop Boys and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. You know, and when I listen to this album, I don't hear any of that. I don't hear any of that sound whatsoever. <laughs> so he also produced Elton John. Got to look no, up what uh, exactly he did. But I, um, I've been eyeing up getting him on my show. Uh, unfortunately, he's already been on some other podcast called Three Arms or something. So I'm gonna I'm gonna wait just a little bit. Same with okay. freaking Julia Baird. I was I was eyeing her up, but then Hudson Hudson Randy comes in and swoops in. I'm like, you're not even twenty years old, and you've got an interview with Julia Baird, like. You you don't even know you're playing with fire, Hudson. You're playing with fire. you're playing with powers you do not understand, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's he's fourteen, you know, and uh, he's fearless. I, I, I thought he was seventeen. Oh my god! Oh no, my, no, he's no. Fourteen. <laughs> god. How old is Ethan? Is he eighteen now? Who's that? Ethan. Is Ethan at least eighteen? I think he's eighteen. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So anyway, as I was saying, McCartney three. Sam, please stop talking about it. I know. It's important. Mm. Uh, like, a, like an icon. Yeah, onto a song that I've been eager to talk about. And I know that you've been eager to talk about, so that is even more exciting. Like, a, like an icon. There was a girl who loved a biker. She used to follow him across America. But the biker didn't like her. She didn't care. 
she still persisted Though her brother said she was twisted And the family said they wouldn't miss her anyway She loved the bike song a meme song might be not, not enough of a, of a description really because this is an infamous track this is as we said this is Mary Had a Little Lamb this is you know, any of the bad stuff like for me I'll say my love but I know that wouldn't apply to you but you know I don't think I've ever felt like I've been so against the grain since a song like Jet because I love this track uh, I feel like I'm on the complete wrong side of history here. Mm. Uh, I do have a tendency to go for an underdog and be a devil's advocate, but I'm not being melodramatic or ironic when I say that this is a truly enjoyable song and it's it's so unfairly savaged. You know, it's 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 one of those tracks that it, it just grabs you with a really kooky little guitar rhythm at, at the start and you're like, oh, okay, what's this? Where's this where's this going? And mm. you have that great like, little piano lick just, just, just to kick us off in that real rock and roll way. And then you, you come to an impasse. You can either accept that the lyric is, there was a girl who loved a biker, she used to follow him across America. And you could either think that that's just a unique, you know, rhythm and vocal style for this particular song and you get over it and move on with your life. Or you can kick off as if it's the worst thing McCartney's ever done and they're the worst lyrics he's ever written. And I'm not going to say otherwise, but this is not a bad song. It's not even a, a, a mediocre song. It's a great song. I, I like it a lot. But, you know, as someone who always cares about the melody first and the arrangement and all that, lyrics matter a lot to me, but not as much as everything else. Um, I can understand how the lyrics can be awkward for some people. You know, rhyming biker with Leica. You know, but the that's, biker didn't like it. I, cool. I know, but that's I all. Like it. That's, that's so cool. McCartney does all this play on word stuff throughout his career, and a lot of people aren't aware of it. You know, yeah, no, no. If John Lennon had made the Leica and Nikon pun, it would be lauded as one of the cleverest utterances ever said by a human being. But because Paul's having a little bit of fun with wordplay, everyone's going to say, oh, this is just McCartney's a song he could write in his sleep. He's not even trying anymore. I'm like, fitting Leica and Nikon into the same sentence. So it's it's not even a, a, a double pun. It's a triple pun, yeah. uh, which uh, Alan Cozen point, uh, pointed out to me uh, when, when we did the uh, Up Close episode. I was very impressed. But... <laughs> what what is so upsetting i don't understand what people are getting upset about i'm more upset that people are upset if anything and uh the idea that this song is anything other than a fantastic end to side one is i, I can't even empathize with it we get some a great little growl on this one from paul i really i really love his voice like, what you precious one 
got a trip away. Like it's so. <laughs> it's, it, it, okay, a lot a lot of the words I use as posit- as positives do sound like negatives. Like this song is ridiculous, or it's all over the place. I mean them in the totally best poss- possible way. Like this is uh-huh. a little ramshackle song that you know this is kind of song that's barely got enough gas and the, the one of the wheels is a little wonky but that's part of the ride it's a fun song it's not meant to be taken as seriously as here today you know oh. this is this is something that has just followed on from i owe it all to you quite a serious uh somber track and he's uh-huh. just he's kicking things up a gear here and maybe it's because he hasn't done anything particularly silly love songy and now he's doing something a little bit silly-ish but it's not a love song people are acting like it's a bit more dramatic than maybe it is i think this is a really fascinating case study in terms of the fandom i'd love to know what the reasoning behind it is i've you know some people say the lyrics are bad some people don't like the melody but i like both of them ken so i like it too you know it's very hard to make out fans criticism sometimes because um, McCartney gets accused of writing some dumb lyrics here and there. And yet, if there are ridiculous lyrics in a Beatles song, that's okay. Yes. You know, I mean, um, you know, we've talked on, on um, things we said today about driving rain. One, two, three, four, five, let's go for a drive. And Alan Cozen is always, it's like, the first thing that enters his brain when it comes to the album is just that line. Forgetting there's a lot of other songs. He picks on the one thing. And, you know, the same guy also wrote one, two, three, four. Can I have a little more? Yeah. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I love you. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. You know, we just did a show on Talk More Talk where, so uh, where we, we, were, we were discussing uh, Pipes of Peace and everybody picks on the I acted like a dustbin lid line, you know, yes. and dustbin lid is supposed to be like a Cockney slang for a crazy kid or, you know, but it doesn't matter whether it, it means that or not. It sticks out in people's heads and they keep picking on mm. that. But I guess, you know, he got walrus gumboot is a good line <laughs> in a song. You know, that's OK. When it's done yeah. by the Beatles, it's all right. But when Paul McCartney does something on his own. You know, a lot of people like to pick on an occasional word here and there or where it seems like he's not really putting that much effort in when it comes to his lyrics. How do people even gauge the effort of this man? Like, I know I sometimes do on the show, but he, he's, he does so much and is so prolific and is so constantly working that to ever accuse him of laziness is borderline treason. <laughs> He could he could have stopped recording ages ago, and he never he never stops in his in his spare time. He does it. What is it? Uh, Paul, Paul McCartney never stopped stopping. Is it or something like that? He is That's like a shark, of, though. He's a shark. He's one of the one of the biggest reasons why I admire the man so much is that he never stops. You know, and um, beyond writing music he's done his poetry he's he's done his paintings he does the classical stuff he does the firemen on top of all of the touring and making the pop albums he's had an extremely productive career and there's still a ton of stuff we haven't even heard that he's done so when when the vaults are opened ken it's going to completely we're going to have to change the entire narrative because if if Stella, 
one day after he dearly departs us in 50 years, of course, uh, she decides to go, right, I'm going to press the button that releases to the internet 276 unreleased McCartney compositions. It's literally going to ruin the story because every song's now going to have to be recontextualized and <laughs> cross-referenced with another 276 songs, you know. All the books that have come up with all this information, they've all gotten it wrong. <laughs> yes. Turn. Yeah, it turns out uh, Biker Like an Icon was actually based on this concept album Paul was going to do in 94 called Biker, and there's 12 other songs about motorcyclists. <laughs> ah, you feel bad now slating off the song, don't you? You know, when... when, when um... When Egypt Station came out, I just gonna, just want to bring this up. Yeah. And uh, one of the many later versions had uh, Frank Sinatra's "Party" on there, which I love a lot as a song. And then you learn that it started off as being a song back in the mid seventies. Fishy matters, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have this theory that <laughs> so much of what Paul puts out started out in the seventies. Yes, you know, in nineteen seventy four, he 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 wrote. 300 songs and they're trickling out a little bit at a time you know? Cos cosmically conscious you know well that was 68 68 in india and i don't think i think it's this it's not as big no fishy matters to frank snatch is still the biggest gap i think from original recording to official release i think yeah but even still like now you you had um when winter comes yeah big gap there 1992 you mean September 3rd, my birthday, 1992, you mean, Ken? Oh, <laughs> that, wow, you are a lucky man. When Winter Comes and Calico Skies were recorded on my birth. And my day, my Great birth. Day. Yes. And day great was day. recorded. That was the day of your birth? Yeah. The actual day you were born, not on Se your birthday. Se September 3rd, yes, day I was born. Paul was celebrating you. Oh my God. Sailor Sam, it's all connected. <laughs> it's all connected. Paul knew you were born that day. So Paul. now every time I talk to you, I'm going to have to thank you for bringing us those three songs. Uh, Paul knew, man. He, knew, uh, he knows. Yeah. Oh, that was a terrible Paul Newman joke as well. I'm sure all the young kids will be laughing at that, at that reference. Uh, hi -oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, everyone. Now it's time to move on to side two of Off the Ground. And in doing so, we're going to talk about something I think we all need in the world at the moment, Ken, which is a bit of peace in the neighbourhood. sum this song up just by reading the opening line ken the best thing i ever saw 
was a man who loved his wife. Now, is that the most Paul McCartney statement ever declared in a song, especially for an opening line? Uh, I don't know if it's the most, but it's very typical of him. Yeah. Paul, Paul is so good at picking up something so extraordinarily simple in our daily lives, something that he really appreciates. Mm-hmm. Just the idea of a man who loves his wife. That's it. You know, <laughs> isn't that a great thing? Something to celebrate. You know, not talking about material wealth or anything like that. Just two people loving each other. It does carry on from that uh, thing we were talking about earlier in that, you know, we had We Got Married and Distractions on the last album. And this is a kind of continuation of those mature themes. And mm. uh, it was only ever going to come out in his music, as all of this does. But I think with something like Peace in the Neighborhood, we are kind of slightly approaching self-parody with this kind of topic. I think there needed to be a little bit of self-editing here, maybe get someone else to look at this from a slightly different angle. I don't think it lands quite as well as some of the other songs do, at least in terms of the lyricism. I don't think the phrase peace in the neighborhood is that evocative. uh, And we do kind of tiptoe towards the kind of dorkier, cornier, lame element of Paul's songwriting here because there's nothing all that evocative. And I guess that's the point. It's peace in the neighbourhood. There, there isn't meant to be a great conflict and a disturbance and a resolution and the hero's arc in this song and all that. But I think Paul has done other songs that are about obscure topics where he has managed to find a certain je ne sais quoi or a beautiful image that he can build a song around. But here, I don't really get that. What you do get is the is the production, though. And I don't think it, uh, that we've really given the production enough of a, a fair shake on this album because it doesn't sound like anything in the Paul McCartney canon before or after. And the ambiance here is it's still really enjoyable. It's still got that kind of ethereal, angelic, flying above the clouds, like, like the off-the-ground video feel to it. And... Mm. I love this texture, especially when we get to um, the kind of coda where they're where they're singing the harmony, where they're going, the you know, mm-hmm. that's that's some primo McCartney harmony there. Yeah, you know, I, I really, especially love this song. A lot of people knocked it, mm-hmm. and I was referring it to being the bathroom break song when he did it live. <laughs> which I don't take offense to because I know a lot of people get up out of their seats when there's a song they don't know. It's not necessarily a reflection of what they yeah. think of the song. It's a my, it's my Valentine these days, isn't it? I think that's the current. Yeah, yeah. that's true. And yeah. my Valentine's a beautiful song. But Peace in the Neighborhood is very simple ideas put together in a song. You know, I was there. I really was in the center of a love vibration you know, people helping each other out, you know, maybe that's not so evocative to you, but I'm thinking about the homes I've had in my lifetime mm-hmm. and the streets that I've lived on and if people got together and they were friendly with each other and, you know, it was just a nice neighborhood. It's just a simple <laughs> idea, people getting along yeah. and, uh, and it's great. Uh, I love it. But the, the thing I like most about well, certain songs you come across where it doesn't sound like anything else he's ever written before, mm-hmm. maybe melodically or structurally. This song has sort of like a very, this might be a stretch, but kind of a light, very light jazz 
feel to it. Mm. Although so does distractions, but this is so different. I mean, it's, it's semi steely Danish to me. Okay. You know, Mm. I don't know if anybody else hears that, but I like when I hear a song and it's unlike anything else I've heard. I mean, not that it, it it's it's groundbreaking in any way, but I don't think I've come across another song that I would say is anything like Peace in the Neighborhood from Paul prior to it. So I like that aspect of it. No, I, I cannot take away this song's uniqueness, whether it, it, within his own discography or the wider spectrum of music. And some of the stuff in it really is quite transcendent to me with with the melody and and where it goes. It mm. really is enjoyable. I guess a lot of that is the fact that this is another one of those songs that was done in like either one take or they reused a lot of, of elements from the rehearsal take. Uh, some uh, some of some of that is in Club Sandwich sixty five. Paul goes mm. into that. Um, he calls it a very casual take, which I totally get, and it's just. A different vibe for Paul. Yeah, you are. You you are so 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 right. N- n- normally, uh, everything has to be so impassioned, and everything has to be kind of reactive, or it, it has to get people dancing, or something like that. But here, you know, maybe he's not even aiming for that kind of song. He he he, he kind of knows that he has a bit more room to do different stuff on his albums, and he can do something different. Yeah, you are. You are right. You you, you really are, Ken. I like when he occasionally writes songs about peace, although the last one was my least favorite. Oh, people, <laughs> like people, people want peace. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that big on that one, but Peace in the Neighborhood's killer to me. Killer track. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I wouldn't call it killer. Uh, there, there is a point on the album, especially with Side 2, where I can't quite tell whether I like the songs legitimately or ironically or whether i just think they're kind of fun and throw away and um well actually with the next song golden earth girl we are going to see that this might be the first song on the album that i straight up don't like and i I can already hear gasps in the audience so far with this album more positive than I think most people would have guessed and I hate to be hyperbolic but this is where Paul starts going through the motions with me a little bit kind of airing more towards that mid 80s tired old McCartney shtick I'm not going to call this bad because there is one moment that I do find particularly strong in this song but you know we all hear these platitudes about Paul can write songs in his sleep or he's in autopilot but this is probably the most egregious example, at least on this album, of Paul reusing his tropes just to come up with the song. The melody and production have very been there, done that. 
and I'm just sat there confused as to whether any of that is on purpose or not. And then I find a quote from Hamish Stewart in the New World Tour book where he says, Paul was thinking of doing that with an orchestra and I don't know how it became a band number. So I get the distinct feeling that this is probably going to be a working classical number that he ended up kind of doodling in front of the band. Then they take it. And that's why probably to my, to me or to my ear, it doesn't quite work. You know, if maybe these vocal lines were replaced with you know, swelling orchestral music instead, a la Thrillington, maybe I'd like it a little bit more. But well, you you do know. Yeah. I'm not sure if 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 you were alluding to it or not, but it it did end up on working classical. Oh, it did. Oh, see, folks, that 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 <laughs> that is a yeah. Oh dear. So maybe it was meant to purely be just something like that. <laughs> oh wow. Again, folks, Sam looks up something on the internet. So, Working Classical was the same year or the year after this? I forget uh, exactly. Working uh, Classical. I think oh, it, I oh, think it oh, was... Oh, oh, it's, ni- oh, it's 99, so it's way later. Yeah. Yeah. Woman Beautiful. No, I need I need, I need, need to change my reference. What did I mean? I didn't mean that. Goal and Earth Goal. Did I mean Standing Stone or something? Yeah, probably something like that. Or Oratory. Yeah, something like that. But... It did. I did get the sense that this was meant to be something that was purely for the uh, orchestral, and maybe, maybe it will sound better. I should go and check out that version now. Maybe I will enjoy that one a lot more than this. Mm. The, the one thing that really got me with this song was the piano bit right at the start, and yeah. I was like, "Is this just Paul doing the piano lines from Maybe I'm Amazed again, but just slightly shaking it up?" It felt like that classic Morecambe and Wise sketch where it's like, I am playing the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. Uh, it, it just felt like he was using direct samples from the song. And I think that just put me in a bad mood from the start. But I've been slagging the song off for too long. So before I, I, let, I, I let Ken completely refute me, I will just say the lyricism is particularly strong in this one. I did, mm. I did find that to be quite enlivening at least it did kind of drag the song kicking and screaming a bit into the middle ground for me but the standout moment is is that bridge like the bridge in this song is just incredible it is pure it is pure heavenly mccartney that like fish in a sunbeam in eggshell seas eggshell mm-hmm. finish i don't know why that's stuck on this song like that is one of my favorite moments on the album and it's kind of stuck in the middle of this languid boring song that i don't like so I, you know, that bit for me is probably worth the rest of the song because uh, it's just this glorious little counterpoint pocket. Uh, but the rest of the song I do kind of just skip. Okay. Well, I will indeed refute you on this. <laughs> for it. You know, I do, I do agree about, you know, the introduction. It sounds like a lot of other piano introductions that are on Paul songs, you know, warm and beautiful come to mind, something like that. But even still, I mean, probably his greatest strength in his career have been his melodies. And this is a gorgeous melody. And I like counter melody. I like the lyrics in this song. Even if it sounds melodically like a lot of other songs of his, and because of the fact you're used to a lot of these piano introduction songs from, from Paul, I still love it if it as long as the songs are strong. And every now and then, Paul does these play on word things. And you were talking about in eggshell seas. Mm-hmm. And I 
I do kind of believe that that's like a play on the Christmas song, Gloria and XLC. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if he's ever said that, but it's something my wife pointed out to me as, she, as soon as she heard that song. But it sounds just like that mm. phonetically. So I'm wondering if he was thinking that. You know, it's one of those things Paul does every now and then. Said farewell to the last hotel that never was much kind of abode. <laughs> you know, I love when Paul does stuff like that. So I think he is playing with the words there on the song. And it's one of those songs I always play like around Earth Day. Okay. Kind of, you know, works on that level. So I like it a lot. You know, it's just even even the songs that you might think aren't the strongest still have so many great traits to them. Mm-hmm. And with McCartney, because of what I said, I mean, there's more to a song than just the melody. But it, to me, that's the the single most important thing. And those are that's what always sticks out in my head. You know, most of all, when it comes to Paul, when all is said and done, there's plenty of times when he's written average lyrics. And it doesn't matter if the melody is really strong. Although I do like the lyrics in Golden Earth Girl. But, you know, that's, that's the hallmark of, uh, of a McCartney song is mm-hmm. the great melody first. And then usually he does have good lyrics and a great arrangement. So, but I like Golden Earth Girl. Like I said before, I like every song on the album, but yeah. I do feel like a bit horrible going after a Linda song. I always, I, I always do, and like you know, I will admit I have, I have caught myself singing the opening line to this song quite, quite, quite a few times. I, I do like that "Golden Earth Girl, Female Animal." I, that's a really, really gorgeous vocal melody. But mm. the rest of the song is kind of forgettable for me, right up until the bridge section, and then. I kind of forget about the rest of it again. It's a bit of a background song. This would be Ooh. my toilet song. Okay. Um, I try and get back before the, before the bridge, I guess. <laughs> we can agree to disagree. That's a, that's good. Create create conflict drama. It'll it'll it'll, <laughs> it'll get the views. <laughs> now, um we're going to move on to a song though that people probably think that we there would be some conflict on but if they remember what I said about the last McManus-McCartney composition, then they might be able to predict what I think here. Folks, this is The Lovers That Never Were. cut to the chase do i like this song well rather against type again i'm gonna have to report that i i think this is really strong this is a really really good paul mccartney elvis Mm. costello composition is it as good as mistress and maid 
No, it's probably the weaker sibling in that regard. But in terms of like songs in the McCartney canon, like this one deserves a lot more recognition, I feel. This is exactly what I want in terms of a McCartney McManus composition. It definitely feels like it's the best kind of mode. It, like, you know, when throughout all the Flowers in the Dirt um, press stuff, there was just all this talk about, oh, he's the Lennon to, to McCartney. He's going to be this, mm. this dark counterpoint. I actually get that in this song, both in like the sound of it and the lyricism and the topic at hand. It, it all actually feels like they've delivered on that promise more so than a lot of the other tracks they did together. And yeah, I just find this one really quite exciting, especially when it opens with that melodramatic, exhilarating piano mm. opening, especially compared to the damp squib of a piano opening from the last one as well. Like this is a great kick in the bum that this album needs. A, a bit like San Ferrian on uh, Wing, Wings at the Speed of Sound or something. Like for, for me, this just this just picks the album back up in terms of pace and makes things a little more exciting again. This song's got so much drama and passion to it, especially with the way Paul and Hamish sing this. I mean, I've just got to say, Hamish is a totally perfect replacement for uh, Costello's vocal. Because in some ways he doesn't sound like him at all, but he still kind of evokes the tomba, I guess. Like it still feels Costello-esque in the way that the two voices play against each other. And I think there's just a maybe it's just the way in it's written, but I feel Costello all over this song, probably more so than on, on songs on flowers, I guess. Uh-huh. Before we talk about this song, how, what what is it about San Ferrian that that's a kick in the bum for you? <laughs> no, 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 a kick up the bum. It like oh, it, kick it, up the bum. Yeah, it just uh, especially on that album, it just kind of wakes me up a bit and uh, okay recaptures my attention on that on that album and gets me a bit more engaged because I, I think that's after three non McCartney lead vocals and uh, all right, even me at my least cynical find myself going a bit like nodding off slightly i misinterpreted what you meant i thought you meant like a you know a kick-ass song kind of thing you know a rocker of some kind but sound very you know, Anne, you know <laughs> no. i'm sure someone out there write in if you think sound very kick-ass i do like that yeah. song it's one of my favorites on the album but kick-ass is not a is not a phrase i would use to describe it at all okay but yeah lovers that never were love it to death you know apart from i just mentioned melody being you know uh, the biggest thing when it comes to Paul and his compositions. Sometimes I listen to Paul's songs just because of his vocals mm-hmm. and his vocals are outstanding in the song and it goes way mm-hmm. high up and he's pushing himself. And I love when he does that. And, you know, despite what you're saying about Hamish Stewart, maybe I need to listen to that song a lot more because I just, I hear Paul more than anything else. Mm-hmm. He just dominates the song so much. And then there's the the back and forth at the end for as long as the trees, as long as the trees. Mm. You know, I, I like all that stuff. Uh, and again, I question, as I did with Mistress and Maid, you know, what is this about songs in three, four time with him and Elvis Costello? Everything is like <laughs> that. Yeah. I wish somebody would ask him that question, but it's, it's a, an incredibly well-constructed song. And everything about it is just so perfect. It's another thing we need to say about Off the Ground as an album is that it's McCartney's vocals are really powerful in certain moments, especially on this song and one that we will discuss, Wine Dark Open Sea. 
a lot of varied vocals as well, actually. I mean, especially with the uh, the opening whisper for, uh, on on yeah. the title track as well. We are getting a yeah. a, a nice wide breadth of uh, McCartney vocals here, though. In terms of production, like I know the final song is the one that's described as the Beatley one, but for me, it, this one was the one that sounded most typically McCartney-esque, I guess, without feeling like it was trying to. Especially at the end, with with the when you were saying with that with that back and forth with the kind of yeah. like that just to me felt very classic mid 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 seventies Paul. Whereas something we're going to talk about later kind of feels like an affectation of that, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Lovers that never were is is classic McCartney. It's got to be. It's in my top three of McCartney Costello collaborations. And there are about 12 total, are there? Something like that? Uh, Some... Could be a little bit more. It's around that. Something like that, yeah. I wish there were a lot more, though. But uh, Speaking of collaborations, though, you can tell that Costello's definitely not in the studio for this one because I think the song starts out, especially with the piano bit, as quite a sparse, collaborative kind of song where it does feel like it, it's almost just Hamish and Paul together doing, do, doing this duet. But then... As the song goes on, it does devolve into this grandiose McCartney indulgent overproduction. And like, I dig that, but you know, it does clearly almost go from a Paul and Elvis song to this is Paul's song. This is, this is all Paul now. And as I said in the last song, most of that is always for the, for the better, I feel. And maybe there's just something about Paul approaching this material a couple of years on looking at it with a fresh face, with a new producer. I think he's done some excellent stuff with it. Mm. I would never call this song overproduced, though. I think it's just right. That's just me. Fair enough. So. We'll, we'll have to agree, <laughs> agree to disagree, like, like, yeah. like you say, Ken. But we will agree that it's an excellent song, though. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, love, I love this one. By the way, that, what did you think of like the, the demo of this, of Paul and Elvis? Then there's the demo of the band doing it. I haven't heard the demo of the band doing it. I'll have, I'll have to, I'll have to check that one out. That's amazing. They're both great. I mean, I love the whole disc of Paul and Elvis and just the two of them, just for that aspect alone. And vocally, they sound tremendous together. I wish there were more songs. This is only nine songs on each disc. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, and the band one is killer. Very powerful. Great vocals from Paul. It's strange that there was never an official McCartney McManus release, and that it's been kind of relegated to either various archive collections or bootlegs. I feel like there would have been enough material to just release an album called McCartney McManus and take a nice little photo for it, you know? Well, over time there was enough, but I don't think at any one moment they wrote enough together to make up a full album. But early on they decided, well, we'll we'll sprinkle your album with a couple of our Mm -hmm. songs together and do the same thing for me. And that's how it worked out. It would be nice if uh, the two record, of them got together again and did make a full album together. Or if record companies could just let two different artists from two different companies just use uh, each other's songs on a nice little compilation album. Everyone's a winner. I mean, we were just talking off air about um, Three Imagined. And when, and when you look at the liner notes, everyone's courtesy of everyone else. And it just all looks like a legal nightmare to do something like <laughs> Three, three, uh, three Imagined, uh, having, having Paul... Uh, be be the center of it, I guess, helps a lot. Uh-huh. A lot of, uh, everyone everyone wants to do a favor for uh, Paul McCartney, I think. I think it's a great idea. 
the three imagined. But uh, I want everything reimagined. McCartney reimagined. Red Rose Speedway reimagined. <laughs> well, yeah. Ram imagined. Ram. Ram well, Ram we just got Ram on, so we got Ram on. So oh. the tribute. No, and then and then we'll get Fernando Podomo to to uh, work on it as well. You know, we'll uh, we'll we'll get all the all the Ram stars on on this next one. You know, he's uh, got to do wildlife next. He has, he has, he definitely has. <laughs> At least that, and then Red Rose, because that's then those are all the albums with Ram content on them. Oh wait, no, does anything else after Ram? I guess the Rupert the Bear has Sunshine Sun Time on it as well. Uh huh. I'm trying to think of what um A Love for You. Kind, that was used pretty late as well, wasn't it? Released late. Released late. It's yeah. on the RAM, the reissue of RAM for the box set. There was also a version that appeared on that movie. Um was it The In Laws with I Albert Brooks? So, I think so, yeah. yeah. Yep. It's one of those uh, obscure McCartney movies where you're like, "Oh, that was a that was a thing for that." Um, wasn't there a, like a McCartney song not used for a Ramones movie? Yeah, like, did we meet somewhere, meet somewhere before? before? Yeah, and like, for Rock was, and Roll High School. <laughs> does not seem like a, a, an appropriate song for a movie called Rock and Roll High School. <laughs> <laughs> very very strange one there. Uh, anyway. Mm. Back to the topic at hand because we're doing bloody well for time for us, you, you, you and me. Can I'm, I'm, I'm actually shocked how far we've got through already. So, okay. with with <laughs> that exuberance in mind, um, we're going to talk about a song that I was very eager to talk to you about after I and Alan Cozen uh, spoke about, it, and he gave it a very positive review on the MTV Up Close episode. This is "Get Out of My Way." Where do I begin? Where do I begin? Again, there's a part of me that thinks that this is one of the most enjoyably goofy tracks on the album. Uh, something like maybe Nobody Knows or Hey Hey. But then I think this, this is also a bit of a flop. Uh, I don't think it's good rock and roll. I think it makes Paul look a little bit outside of the loop. And I think some of my enjoyment is like schadenfreude. Like, it's kind of funny that Paul thinks he's doing this kind of cool rocker thing during the middle of alt-rock and grunge. <laughs> and he kind of thinks he's a bit cooler than he is in this mode. He speaks about, like, you know, this was an attempt at writing a straightforward rock and roll song. A lot of people will tell you that they're the hardest songs to write, even though they sound very simple. To get them to sound authentic is difficult. And... How portentous a statement is that? Because I think hilariously, Ken, with this song, he proves 
just how right that statement is because I don't think he did write an authentic rock and roll song here. I think he proves how difficult it was. Again, like I said, th- there is a kind of goofy, silly element that I do enjoy. And there's also a part of me that thought of you when I was first listening to this song, when you say, if you'd have taken this song back to the 70s, this would have been a big hit. And I do kind of get that with this. And I feel like the tastes are definitely more suited for that. But I can see you, oh. winc- I can see you wincing at me, Ken. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you how, how you feel about this song. Um, I've always liked it. Uh, I just, as soon as I heard it, my mind thought of Chuck Berry. And mm. I'm pretty sure that Paul has said it's like in the style of a Chuck Berry song, mm. where you're cramming a lot of words in. And I think it works. I mean, there. <laughs> once you put that thought in my head that this song is kind of like, well, you're saying not authentic, kind of forced. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a natural feel to it like the songs that I've heard from the 50s that I do love. Once you plant that thought in my head, that I can start thinking that way. But I've always enjoyed that song from the very beginning. And I think I also like it a lot because there's so many McCartney albums where I wish he'd rock more. And, um, you know, Flowers in the Dirt was the biggest example of that. Mm-hmm. You do have a few rockers on this album, like Looking for Changes, I suppose, Biker Like an Icon. And then... And then you've got this one. So you need more of that, a little bit more of a rock feel on his album. So for that reason, I do like this one. And it sticks out in my head after I've heard it. You know, I can hear the chorus automatically. And, you know, I like the guitar work on it. Robbie McIntosh. You know, I think it's good stuff. Is it a classic? Maybe not, but it's enjoyable. The brass section in this one gave me some real press-to-play vibes that, that the uh, the brass was really bright and uh, brought and brought up in, in in the mix something like stranglehold maybe where it's all just uh, it's all very again kind of melodramatic um and i can imagine paul writing this one and thinking that this is going to be another helen wheels another kind of driving anthem mm. and I, not nearly as good as Helen wheels but nowhere no no that's definitely true and maybe it's cuz i don't i don't drive but you know, I was I was riding my bike to this one at least, trying to get in the groove. And I think inauthentic is definitely the, the phrase to take away from this one. I think this song also reinforces for me just how truly front-ended this album is in terms of the best songs. I really feel like Side One has all the A and AAA songs, whereas we're kind of getting to B, C, tier, Paul at this point. I kind of would have would have liked something a little a little more. Uh, unique i guess um i mean we've we've got a line where where paul says i don't need anybody to tell me how to be right and like being right is like the most generic overused like lyric ever Mm. i feel like paul is perfectly capable of writing something a bit better than that maybe maybe you know there wasn't enough of a Nigel Godrich, George Martin uh, production approach to this where someone says, no, Paul, go back and do something a bit better than this. Not the most unique song ever, I must, I must admit. And yeah, even the bass line as well, that was, that, that was very been there, done that as well. Bit of a letdown, really. Um, and this is kind of where the album does start winding down for me. And I really, 
in, in all honesty, I don't make it through the album many times. I do kind of, mm. I mean, I, I'm not switching it off, but I'm definitely moving on to focus on something else at this point, maybe some writing or something. And it is just in the background at this point. And in terms of uh, been there, done that, and repeated McCartney imagery and a familiar feeling, that is going to bring us on to Wine Dark, Open Sea. Open up your heart If you want to set me free Full of love, your love Sailing on a wide dark open sea Sailing on a wide dark open sea Lighten up my heart Leave it to the evening breeze Give me love, your love Okay, so just so we're all in the right place, folks, I did a bit of wiki-based research to find out what wine dark means. I actually didn't know. I didn't know what wine dark means. Wine dark is a traditional English translation of, I'm not even going to try and pronounce that, an epitaph of Homer of uncertain meaning, a literal translation of wine-faced sea or wine-eyed, and it is attested to five times in the Iliad and 12 times in the Odyssey to describe a rough or stormy sea. You didn't know that, but going into the song? Yeah, I, 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 I've never heard that phrase. I've never heard the phrase. Um, uh-huh. I mean, us, I mean, what are they teaching us kids in school these days? I mean, am, am, am I right? Yeah, Ken, this is another one of those songs where I feel like I've, I've heard this one before, or at least I've heard it uh, be done better by Paul somewhere else in, in his career. And there are many times where he repeats himself, but it still feels fresh. You know he's done it before, but he still finds a way to put a new spin on it. And I've, I've said this with a couple of songs already, but this is falling short of like the moniker of a proper classic for me. I kind of feel like it's aiming for something of the majesty and poignance of Wanderlust or Calico Skies, two songs that it also shares kind of themes and imagery with as well so maybe that that sort of makes it feel a little bit lacking i can't quite pin what it is but it's just airing again to, towards a more generic mccartney song for me here i find it quite un, unimaginative and i'd rather go listen to another song on another album and that is the beauty of mccartney's dis- discography if there is a song you don't like you don't you don't have to throw the baby out with the bath water and you can just go and curate yourself something else from his enormous career but that is something mm-hmm. I, I do do when I, I listen to this song this is probably the point in the episode where I'm like yeah I kind of see why people would be so focused on the b-sides of this album because there does seem to be a disconnect between me and and side two I'm just straight up not enjoying it as much and there doesn't seem to be all that much difference in like the the style of songwriting the the production is incredibly consistent throughout this whole album but I think it's just the songwriting this this song's just not doing it for me McCartney's going through the motions again and I'd like something from the b-sides anything to replace this if I'm honest hmm 
Okay. Well, first folk, of all, folk, well, folks, Ken likes every song <laughs> on this album, so you don't need to hold your breath here. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm honest about the way I feel, and I, when it comes to the solo Beatle catalog in general, I like most of the songs. I'm not yeah. going to say I love every single song, but let me just before I talk about Wine Dark Open Sea, let me just kind of comment on what you said about you know the first side of this album being so strong i think the first side of the album is more instantly likable mm-hmm. i think it's more commercial than the second the second side takes a while to grow on you but when it does grow on you if it does then it really can hit you hard and you know there are certain songs like well you know i instantly liked um the lovers that never were mm-hmm. peace in the neighborhood took a while to grow on me um I instantly like it out of my way. This is one of the songs, Wine Dark Open Sea, that was like a slow burner for me. It's it's rich in melody. And again, there is something to be said about writing fairly simple lyrics that say a lot. You know, open up my heart if you want to set me free, full of love, your love, sailing on a, a wine dark open sea. You know, um... I like the imagery of it. Lighten up my heart. Um, leave it to the evening breeze. You know, makes you feel like you're there at the beach or something. And, um, you know, there's a warmness to it. I like the very mid-tempo feel of it. I love to death Paul's vocals, which build towards the end when mm-hmm. he's singing the chorus. You know, the only thing that, that I have a problem with with this song is that it's one of those songs that I feel go on too long. Five minutes, 27 seconds, folks. Hmm. You know, it could be trimmed by a minute or something like that. Mm-hmm. There are certain songs in McCartney's catalog. I think I've talked about this with you that go on too long. And then there are some songs that are way too short, mm-hmm. like San Ferry Ann, for example. That's another one. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a bit of editing that needs to be done here and there on McCartney songs or certain ones I felt he could have put more effort in and worked on them more and made them a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. You know, I've said that. I know I'll get a lot of heat for it about put it there. I wish put it there was a little bit longer and he wrote another verse or something. Um, but Wine Dark Open Sea, I like a lot. You know, it's again, powerful, powerful melody. That's... If that's the most important thing to you in a song, then McCartney's got to be one of the greatest songwriters in your life. Because that's, that, I, I've said this before, it's his greatest strength. Folks, we also have to take into consideration that uh, I haven't had nearly as much time to stew with these albums as I'd like, even though these episodes take far too long and <laughs> to actually ever come out. But it almost happens like clockwork where about two weeks later, I'll just drop a message to Ken out of the blue where I'll say, Oh my God, I just love wine, dark open sea now. And it's, and <laughs> and it's too late. We've already recorded the episode now uh-huh. and I'll have to wait till I do, you know, a listen with Sam episode in three years time where I can reaffirm my uh, beliefs. Typically, well, to, 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 to be fair, typically during the part one, because I haven't recorded part one yet where I do all the background and stuff. There'll normally be a kind of apologetic 
bit at the start of part one or the, at the start of this episode where I go, please note my opinions have slightly changed. Uh, and, and it's and then, allowed. Yeah. It's allowed. <laughs> but, but they're all normally for the, for for the better. Um, there's very rarely a McCartney album where there's a song that uh, say if there's a McCartney song that I don't like, it's one that I've always disliked there's there's never a song where over time i've grown to dislike it. i've only grown to love his catalog more mm. you know that's one thing about music and i'll just say this for a few seconds about me because i think i'm very different from most people not just in the way that i look at the the beatles catalog but music in general anything i've ever liked from the past i still do mm-hmm. nothing ever diminishes in my eyes but I can like music more than I did in the past. It's always on the upswing with me. So, you know, the only way I differentiate this is there are certain songs that I could listen to with more regularity than others from the past. But, you know, there's so many, um, you know, in the case of the solo Beatles stuff, some of it took a while to grow on me. And when it does, then you realize that, you know, these songs are better you should never go by initial impressions <laughs> or by listening to an album a few times. Because if you listen to it, you, you wait till you really get to know an album well. And even then, years later, you can go back to it and think even more highly of it. Mm-hmm. And I found that with a lot of the solo Beatles stuff. It's not like I loved it all instantly and that's it and it's never changed. Some of it, I've, I've liked all the solo music, but not loved all of it. Quite a lot I love, but gradually over time, you know, my feelings are even stronger in a positive way towards all the solo Beatle music. And we said something when we were talking about the first side of Off the Ground, and I think that this is true. It's easy to look at all the bonus tracks that are on Off the Ground and say, oh, we should replace that with take out Wine Dark Open Sea and take out Biker Like an Icon or whatever it is that you may think less of. But then if those were the bonus tracks later on, you might be saying, you know, this was good enough for the album. Mm. (laughs) It's just you're so used to thinking a certain way. Um, But I always remember when those those CD singles came out for for Off the Ground and and I heard Long Leather Coat and it's like, wow, why wasn't this on the album? Mm. And there's a rocker that would have really, you know, made a difference and balanced out the album more, you know, putting more edge Mm. into the album, but... I think a lot of it just comes from the way we curate music now as well. Like you can create your own album. So maybe people have a certain sense of entitlement to uh, track listing and stuff and how things would be done their way. I mean, right. I mean, I mean, I mean, today, the notion of a track being overplayed is entirely your own fault now. You know, unless you are listing just to the top 10 you know that is the only way a song can be over overplayed to you now. But if if you end up playing a song fifty times a day on your own Spotify account, and then a year later you say, "Oh, I'm I'm, I'm sick to death of that song," well, mm. that's on you now. I'm I'm afraid that's 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 not the song's fault. It's still just as good as, as ever. Well, um, sometimes it comes down to when it first came out, how much it was played, and you can get tired of a song if it was played to death. Like, for example, you know, I love silly love songs to death. And if it came on the radio today and I'm in my car, I'm going to blast it. Would I want to hear it two days in a row? Maybe not. But I could listen to Junior's Farm many days in a row. 
So does that mean that Junior's Farm is a better song necessarily than Silly Love Songs? I don't know. But that's, uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's um, how you judge music that way. I still love these songs, but there are certain songs that you could listen to with, with more repetition than others. That's all. No, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll need an expensive experiment where we get 100 chimps and we play them silly love songs all day and then we get another 100 chimps and <laughs> play them Junior's Farm and we, and we, and we, look, at the, we look at the results and see what we get. Uh, we're going to move on to what should be the final song, but anyone who's in the know here knows that, that this is our penultimate tune today, everyone. And I'm going to admit to you all now that I've been dreading talking about this song for a while, dreading listening to it, dreading writing about it, and dreading talking about it. But at least for me, it'll soon all be over. This is Come On People, or Come On People. Well, we're going to, yeah, we're going to get it right this time. We're going to, really going to raise it to the sky. I've already checked out the album at this point. I really have. Uh, this is a song that I see as a slog and a chore. This, But this isn't a song where I'm like, oh, I don't even know why I don't like it. Like earlier, I know why I don't like this one. And it is, you're going to scoff at this one. I, th- I think this is a really boring song. Uh, this is incredibly uh, uninspired and uh, uncreative. I'm probably going to get crucified for this because like, I, I always see this song so high up in, in people's lists, but I was quite underwhelmed at how like there was like this lack of passion and urgency in it. There's nothing particularly special that I saw in this song that was making it work or hook me in. With Golden Earth Girl, where he's doing the tropes of like his love songs uh, and his piano ballads here, I kind of felt like he was butchering his grandiose bold closing numbers tropes and he was just kind of going through those motions very little for me to get emotionally invested in like (laughs) the phrase come on people i didn't i didn't find to be all that resonant or effective uh i I, I remember in the moving on documentary all the people talking about how this is an, an incredible song and how the message is 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 really strong and it just feels like, you know what? It, it almost feels like a, a song Paul would write for like a modern day video game. You know, when, when, when like he's doing Hope for the Future. Like it, it just reminded me of Hope for the Future. Okay. That kind of, or like, you know, when he writes, he writes a new song for Lippa every year, like on the spot. And it's the most generic Paul McCartney thing you've ever heard. Cause, cause, <laughs> because he just relies on those same tropes that he has hardwired into his fingers and his brain. That's what I get from this song but they also get george martin involved and no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna have a go at the string section that is admittedly 
very nostalgic and it was quite uh yeah you know it it was bold it was grandiose but more of an affectation i didn't feel like there was a lot of heart in it uh, it felt kind of tacked on like oh we kind of need this and we'll and we'll just do it because we can um yeah a bit of a a bit of a, a letdown for me as a as a closing number here ken hmm. well i do like it a lot i mean there's so much that i do love about it i love the melody i love the message Paul is good at coming up with these positive messages and hopeful songs like Hope for the Future and Hope of Deliverance. You know, uh, maybe the fact that it's a slow song at the very end, maybe that's why you feel the way that you do. The only problem I ever had with Come On People is that I wish he put more effort into the lyrics there when he's just saying, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> put something you put in something a little bit more substantive than that, even though the Beatles loaded their songs with oh yeahs a lot and yeah, yeah, yeahs. But, uh, you know, I just wish he put more effort into the lyrics at that moment in the song. But I love the whole production of it. George Martin's work is superb. I do love the strings in it towards the end. I like the, the counter melody. All that that they add at the end. And the whistling at the very end, too. Um, yeah, it's it's such it's a very strong song overall. I think I wish we had more songs that are this po- positive. You always need someone. Paul's very good at coming up with positive songs through the years. You know, we can work it out even. You know, <laughs> but like, whereas like I feel like a song like um, "Seize the Day" is obviously quite silly and cloying and obviously emotive and could be seen as quite silly. Hmm. I feel like that song uh, lands on its two feet with effortless grace and it totally works and doesn't feel cringy at all. But then you get like lyrics like this, which are a mixture of his lazy kind of placeholder writing and his indulgent, vibrant imagery. Like you got, come on people, let the fun begin. Boring. We've got a future and it's rushing in. Boring. Call all the Why missions. Is that boring? Why <laughs> we, is that boring? We've, we've got what a about future we... and it's rushing in. What the... It just feels like a very empty, been there, done that statement. It's like, okay, we've got a future and it's rushing in, whatever that means. But Charging then, again at the end. We call all the minstrels from the ancient shrine, pass down the message that it's, it's, it's right this time. That's like, what the heck is that? Um, <laughs> I feel like there's a bit of dissonance there and a bit of disconnect between the two kind of, <laughs> between those two sentences. What a weird way to end the album. I feel like if you're going to end the album with this kind of song, maybe don't do it with this message. Maybe you need a message that's a bit more uh, emotive and passionate than just kind of, yeah, come on, everyone, we can do it. Maybe there's also an element of, is this like the third or fourth, maybe even fifth kind of just general positivity, cool vibes, wacky macker, thumbs aloft, kind of song that we've had on this album. Maybe there's just been a bit too much of that. You know, Paul definitely, uh, when he when he gets an idea, he will do it to death on one album rather than stretch it over the, the next three. And perhaps we're just getting a bit, bit too much of that in terms of what I'm not liking about this album. I don't think he does too much of it. You know, it's it's sprinkled throughout his career. On this album, there's there's too much. On this album, there's too much. It's not that. like, and um, this is not a criticism of Ringo, but 
But you know, this message of peace and love he carries with him on so many of his songs now. It's not to that degree with Paul. Yeah, but Paul, yeah, but Paul's a Paul's a writer. He's actually got a pool of references to draw from. Ringo's like, well, I have. I'm not actually a very a very accomplished writer, so I'll just rely on peace and love, and people will buy the album. That's well, is. Ringo is a writer these days, and he has been a. Don't make a face. Look at the album credits. Look at the songwriting credits on his albums. I'm not saying he's not he's literally a, a, writer, a, a writer, but it's 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 chalk and cheese. That it's it's two different leagues. Oh well, I'm not saying he's in the same league as Paul as a songwriter. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but he's I expect has put the I, I expect in. more from Paul. I feel like I, I feel like a teacher. Everybody does. Everybody. Yeah. 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 But I like songs that have a great message like that. We've got a future that's charging in. We'll do what never has been done before. You know, it's one of those reasons why I like through our love so much. It's all very positive. We can do things that they said were impossible. We can see things that they said were invisible, that kind of thing. I find that so much more tangible though, because it's a love song. And I guess I can hmm. get behind that a, a bit more. Whereas this, I, I find this e even less um, engaging than peace in the neighborhood. Like, I can kind of get behind that concept a little bit more, but I feel like just just come on, people. Let's let's be let's all hold hands and be nice. Walking into the future is just a bit too much of a. You know when you, you know when people were upset with John when when he was saying like it's going to be all right on revolution and people were yeah. like ah, ah, kind of morally we don't really agree with that and you sound a bit out of touch. I, I'm kind of getting that with Paul on, on this album in the sense that he might be a bit out of touch in some places and, and might need to restructure his priorities a bit. Cause it, but it's weird for me to say that because he, he does the, the animal rights and animal activism on this album so brilliantly, but I guess with oh. other topics, I'm not getting that same kind of uh, shall we say. He like, like I said, he likes to have a positive attitude in his songs. There's nothing wrong with sticking to that. Mm -hmm. So, regardless of what's going on in the world. Thumbs up, thumbs up, everyone. Yep. <laughs> and what's wrong with that, Ken? And what's wrong with Nothing. that? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing at all. Finally, folks, because I specifically did not want to lump it in with the discussion of the last song, uh, after 40 or so seconds of silence, we have Cosmically Conscious. First of all, Ken, this is Paul's first hidden track, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong there. I have to think and 
something which could be dangerous. Yeah. That could be, yeah. I mean, can you take yeah. me back on uh, the White Album? Could technically be something like that, but or like Her Majesty, but a solo McCartney one that's not listed on the back. You, you can't say Her Majesty. I mean, it's listed right there on the album, and it's not hidden. And Can You Take Me Back was always part of. It's not like you're yeah. waiting for the end of the album, and then suddenly, after some silence, the song appears. Um, so I don't call those hidden. Tracks, have I, have I, you could be right. Was there a version, like the first one that was released didn't have Her Majesty printed on the back? Have I got that completely wrong? I think you're right about that. I'm not sure. Again, folks, write into paulbegoodpod at gmail.com. Let me write to Alan Cozen. (laughs) Hey there, Ken. Uh, Right, what we have here. Uh, (laughs) I do a very good Alan Cozen. (laughs) <laughs> no, me and my friends have been doing. Well, me and my friend Tom have been doing impressions of you guys for since before we even spoke to each other, Ken. Oh yeah. Okay. That's, that's all. That's all we do. I'll never do my Giuliano on air, but I, it's it's fiery. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I don't need to hear it. So, Ken, let's 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 just dial this conversation back just slightly. What do you think of hidden tracks on albums in general? Is it is it just a bit of a a bit of a goof for you, or or do you do you enjoy the possibility that you might discover something on an album like this? I do like that. I think at the very beginning it was a, an extremely cool idea, but the more that it's done, it's not as much of a surprise. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes, like I think in the case of um, Chaos and Creation, with uh, the instrumental, what um, I only have two hands, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And they don't give you the title at all. So you're wondering, what is this? And you're more curious about that. But yeah, the more you get for your money, the more I'm for it. I, I like the idea of that. Yeah. I mean, if you're buying the album, you're still buying the album. And it's not, you're getting something extra and you'll find out about it. Yeah. I just, I hope that not everybody expects it now with every mm-hmm. single album. So. Yeah, and you also have to make sure that you wait a while <laughs> before the song kicks in, that last bonus track. So I was surprised with Cosmically Conscious when I heard that at the end of Come On People. But uh, it was a nice little bonus. I think it's a, it's one of the standout highlights of the album for me. The, 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 the only negative I would have to say is that they didn't use the full cut of the song. And I think you've got to buy the off-the-ground single to get that, the, the full track as, as a B-side. But, yeah, this is just... You mean the, oh, this no, one? Oh, no, no, he's got it. Oh. Again, this is not an episode of Mac It In Your Attics, folk. <laughs> but, uh, I will do the hair, pull back the, oh, the face. Yeah. I mean, technically, this is a Beatles era song, so it's hardly a surprise that this is my favorite from these sessions. It goes all the way back to Rishi Kesh in 68, and that just reinforces how much of a fertile period it was for Paul at that point. It's not quite the gap between Fishy Matters Underwater and Frank's Nantra's Party, but it's still a pretty big gap. It's, it goes very psychedelic uh, towards the end. It, it, it's knowingly very beatly. And that's probably why it was even attached to Come On People in the first place. Again, Paul calling that one the Beatley track. I just think it, it achieves the idea of a, a song that is a little phrase from Maharishi and putting it to music incredibly well. It is a little mantra, you know, 
come and be cosmic conscious, cosmic conscious with me. Such such a joy, joy, such a joy, joy. I think that's even less lyrics than I want you. She's so heavy. You know, this mm-hmm. is this is real brevity here, folks. You know, Shakespeare, eat your heart out. And with so little, Paul is able to do so much with here. Of course, as well, I can't not mention Paul doing uh, the Change Begins Within Benefit concert back in 2009. And they do that song live there with a full band. And it's easily one of the best. And, and with Ringo. And with Ringo. Ringo's there as well. Uh, I, was, I was there at that concert. In fact, I didn't mention what? it before, but I was at Up Close. I was well. Yeah, I was well. I was at both shows at Up Close. Both. Oh, yeah. you look. You look. And that man. that turned out to be an accident, but a very happy accident for me. Had you had yeah. had you get the tickets for the second day then? Well, I got the the tickets for the first day through MPL, mm-hmm. but the second day I worked like a few blocks away from the Ed Sullivan Theater. Right. And one of my listeners from my show when I was doing my show in New Jersey at the time on WDHA called me up and he had won a pair of tickets on Z100, the big top 40 station in New York. And he had no one to go with. And he called me up at my job and he asked me if I would go. And it just so happens that on that second day, there was a huge snowstorm. Yes. And there are people that I know that wanted to go into New York, but they couldn't, or there were train delays and stuff like that. But I was already in New York. And I was there a few blocks away. So what, what do you think I did? That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Oh, my gosh. And, but you, you were also at the, uh, the Change Begins Within concert as well. That, I, I, I never even knew that either. Have you ever practiced meditation or transcendental med- meditation? When I was a teenager for a while. A lot of that was only because of the Beatles. Yes. You know, yes. everything I ever did was because I tried vegetarianism because of the Beatles. You know, it didn't work that well for me but you know i'm, I'm totally for it meditation mm-hmm. and vegetarianism for for people for whom it's meaningful and you get something out of it but yeah i've i've been to a lot of really important shows i was at ringo's 70th birthday show at radio city where paul showed up at the end i was there for that i was at the mean fiddler in england you talk about being lucky <laughs> We might have to get you back on for an episode where, where we do oh, a, okay. a, a gig review of that one. I've, I've been looking. Oh, another I can tick you off for that one as well. Absolutely fantastic. Love it. Well, I will uh, tell you that I, I had never got, I'd never been to England up to that point, and I was dying to go. And I went there with a friend of mine and his cousin. And as soon as we landed in England, we heard about this concert that Paul was doing. We had no idea it was going to happen. So whatever plans Jesus. we had for traveling, you know. <laughs> Visiting all the big sites in London got scrapped. Yeah. The number one plan, <laughs> we got to get tickets to the Mean Fiddler. You know, and I called up, I knew, still know, Mark Lewison, who was working at MPL at the time. He couldn't help me. All the tickets were given out through the radio station, one of the, I, I guess, one of the BBC stations at the time. He didn't have any tickets at all. And, and my friend and I, I'm not sure if his cousin was there too for this but we bought tickets from scalpers on the street we took a chance on it not knowing if it was going to be real or not and it was have you ever been burned by a scalper before no (laughs) i'm very lucky lucky. (laughs) i i i I haven't i haven't bought too many from a scalper but you know there's so many great concerts i've seen from the solo beatles 
and I'll always point to 76, the Wings Over America Tour, as the greatest concert of my life. But there is something about seeing any artist in a small club that, you know, it has a whole different vibe to it. And when you're, I would guess, 30 feet away from Paul on the floor, looking right at him, that was incredible <laughs> with his band. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. I couldn't even imagine that. Couldn't even imagine it. Mm. Uh, yeah. The uh, composure would have been uh, you'd have to put yourself under would be too much for me, I guess. Mm. But yeah, cosmically conscious. What do you think of this final little little track? It's a great hook and a great melody and a great chorus. And if that's all that mattered to me then I would say it's a great track. But then again, this is another song where you wish that he put more into it than just that. Okay. And it's, it's, you know, it works, like you said, as a mantra, you know, just a few words. This is where I feel being very honest about myself that I could be hypocritical because there are plenty of times when, when there'll be a song, a song doesn't have to have verses and a chorus going back to verses and a chorus. That's your typical traditional song Mm -hmm. and part of me always thinks that way and i don't mind if you add more to it but when you've only got a chorus Mm -hmm. you know it just feels to me like i wish that more had been done and yet to be honest there's loads of songs that are just verses with no chorus a lot of folk songs are that way you know i can't say those aren't songs you know but it's kind of like what if you heard give peace a chance and all there was was the chorus and nothing else. Would you say that's a great song? Depends. I've already heard it the other way now. I can't. I, can't, I know I can't, that, but uh, I, I'm just saying as an example, yeah. it's a great phrase to use. Mm-hmm. It's a great melody. All we are saying is give peace. It's simple. It's effective. It gets the point home. Is it a great song if it doesn't have all the verses to go into it? No. And, you know, not. you have come and be cosmically conscious cosmically conscious with me and it's such a joy and that's it but like um you know i feel like i'm being so repetitive here there are certain songs that paul does like that would be something mm-hmm. there ain't much to the song as a song <laughs> but it's everything that he puts around it and he builds around it that makes it interesting his vocals the bass being so hot the drums all over the place and that's what makes you like the song. Even George Harrison pointed out that would be something as one of his favorite songs from the McCartney album. And it, compositionally, it's, there's not much to it, you know? But yeah, do you okay, like okay. songs like that? I mean, Cosmically Conscious is just like that. Think about this song. It reminds me of what Rick Rubin said in one of the recent episodes of um, McCartney 321 when he's talking about waterfalls and how kind of subtly modern the whole thing is. And I, I kind of get that from Cosmically Conscious. It just kind of feels like a modern kind of synth wave track that 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 would just be kind of like buried in the middle of a modern album i kind of like how sparse and little to it there is i kind of feel like paul's having to having to make do and he does make do very well as we've seen with with a lot of songs i've i just enjoy this one i think it's 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 delightfully simple and it doesn't try and overcomplicate itself and i know that's not what you think it it should have but I guess I just enjoy very simple McCartney melodies and I find them very hard to, to uh, resist. And of course, you've got 
you've got the Beatle and, Mah- and Maharishi connection, which adds a whole ne- the, another layer of nostalgia to it. But also, this is just a bonus song at the end of the album. It, it, it's not anything that has to be taken quite as serious as any of the other songs we've mentioned as well. So, right. you know, this could very easily just have been a song that appeared on the archive collection, a future archive collection, and it mm-hmm. would still have the same kind of significance, I guess. And I'm sure it will, that there is an archival off the ground, which there should be. But also, you kind of said when you're talking about the song that it's from his Beatle days, so obviously it must be good. I don't necessarily think that, you know, if he wrote it back then, that it has to be, you know, top quality. Paul, he's written some of his best songs in the Beatles. He's written so many of his best songs on his own. Okay, maybe the best way to phrase it is, for me, it is evocative of quality Paul Beatle era, I guess. It does does remind me of that, definitely. Okay. (laughs) And with that, folks, that brings us to the end of Off the Ground, 1993's Off the Ground. How how, how many is that? 12 official songs, 13 technically, if you count, Cosmically Conscious. Just a a little bit shorter than Flowers in the Dirt, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of minutes shorter as well. I actually thought it was going to be longer after all of that but flowers is actually a very long album when you when you mm. break it down overall though ken how do, how do you feel about about this release now here in the modern day is this still an underappreciated mccartney gem for you or or is it or is it just something that needs a slight reassessment in terms of the overall arc and how the fandom perceive it i think it's underappreciated overall mm-hmm you know, on a scale of one to 10, I would give it probably a nine. You know, I think that highly of it. You know, if, if, um, if it all comes down to whether or not you simply enjoy an album, most of the solo Beatle albums would be rated highly for me. It's just that some you think far more highly of that you enjoy so much more. You know, if I was to compare Flowers in the Dirt to Off the Ground, I love the songs on flowers and the dirt so much more than the ones on off the ground, but the ones that are really powerful for me on off the ground, you know, they, they really can strike a chord with you. Like, you know, I owe it all to you has always been a favorite of mine. I love peace in the neighborhood a lot. I love the lovers that never were, you know, it, that's, that's the fun thing about assessing all this stuff. There's so many reasons to like the music. And for me, like I said, melody always comes first. There are times when I listen just for Paul's vocals, mm-hmm. the lovers that never were. It's kind of like, just concentrate on his singing. doesn't even matter what he's saying in the song. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, oh, darling, you know, you listen for the vocals and you may oh, not even oh, know what, you know. It's, I was going to say, call, uh, call, call me back again. Yeah. They oh, are, okay. They, yeah, yeah, well, Call Me Back Again is in that same vein. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I like it a lot. Every single solo Beatle album, not just Paul's, is worthwhile listening to. You're always going to find some enjoyable tracks. For everybody, it's just a question of how consistently strong is each album. And I do like every song on this album. Maybe not as much as on as songs on other albums, but there's a lot of good stuff on here. And And as we said earlier... If you group together all the bonus tracks that were on the CD singles, this was a very fertile time for him. And it's, it's so amazing to think that if you like the, the songs on Off the Ground or most of the songs, he's got all this other great stuff that he wrote at the same time and recorded that's on these CD singles. And 
They could have made a really good double album. It really could. Double album of off the ground sessions. Yeah, there's definitely enough and enough there. Yeah, I think so. I think. I mean, I'm not sure what record label would would ever want to fund that Allah kind of Red Rose Speedway, but it would have been quite the art the artistic statement just to put all of those songs out there. Because again, like 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 with Red Rose Speedway, you are only getting a just a, a slither of what he was really doing across that whole year. And mm. like you, I mostly like all of these songs. I mostly like this whole album. And you are right. It is underrated. I don't know if I'd go so far as to give it a nine out of 10, but you know, going back to what you were saying about, do I mostly just enjoy this album and all of the songs? Yeah, I do. Do I kind of tune out a little bit towards the end and it kind of just becomes ambient background music? Yeah, a little, a little bit. And the songs that would go into my own personal McCartney collection can probably all be found on side one. I just, I, I do still feel it's very uh, front-ended. And as you said earlier, it's definitely the most commercial side, probably very, very purposefully to kind of hook people in potentially. Mm. But I was, I was so amazed at how unique this album is in terms of its production. It, it, like I said earlier, it doesn't sound like anything he's ever done previous uh, past or future. It is a very, uh, fun little oddity in his discography and the atmosphere and that cons- uh, consistent production throughout was just something that I really felt drawn to every time I every time I put the album on I was like this is just a really fun atmosphere this is a fun vibe if you will and I just enjoyed having the album on is it one of Paul's best no is it rightfully derided as much as it is definitely not uh, like so many albums on this show Pipes of Peace, Press to Play, Flowers in the Dirt, maybe, you know, even Venus and Mars or Red Rose Speedway back in the day, whenever I'm kind of worried about them and there's this huge hype around them and there's people saying, oh, this is bad, that's bad, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Every time I've proven that it's nowhere near as bad as everyone else says. And this is definitely another one of those cases. It does remind me somewhat of the Pipes of Peace tug of war conversation with Flowers mm-hmm. and the Dirt being the tug of war and this being the Pipes of Peace. Rather like Pipes of Peace, this is unfairly unappreciated, but I'm not going to go so far as to say that this is better than Flowers and the Dirt because it just isn't, which is weird because this is more consistent than Flowers, uh, sonically, thematically, just in terms of production, whereas, uh, and, and even in terms of like song quality, like it's kind of, just hovering around that that mid zone, the, or the upper mid zone, shall we say, the sevens and the eights. Whereas flowers kind of has peaks and troughs for me, I guess, huh. like a lot of tens and sixes. So you know, if you put these two albums together, they both come out with the same kind of mean average of high eights for me, I guess. Okay, well, if you rate the album an eight, isn't that worth your while? Four stars, baby. You know, this is this yeah. is one that everyone should check out. It's it's like wildlife, it's like press, pipes of peace. Don't believe the hype. Go and check it out for yourself because can a lot of the times when people uh, are upset with the Paul McCartney album, it is either because he's not being samey enough or because he's being too different. And he's he he has to walk this terrible That's very interesting. Yeah. And it's like he's either it's either too generic an album and everyone kind of throws it to one side, or it's too McCartney two ish and everyone just throws it aside. It's like 
but we want Band on the run. He's not going to do it again, folks. He's never going to do it again. Mm. So don't go in with those expectations. But again, also Paul McCartney requires to do a bit of homework, I guess, to kind of gauge your expectations properly. And a lot of people don't have that time as well. You know, mm. you can't go into Egypt Station with a with a completely blank mind. I think you do need to have a bit of context going in uh, to kind of understand what you're going to get. Sometimes I think, you know, sometimes there are certain fans that are far too analytical about everything. You know, despite the fact that I do all the work that I've been doing on, on the Beatles for so long, I never want to stop having the feeling of just being a fan. Mm-hmm. Not someone that's going to write a review, just wants to take it home if I'm buying it and just, do I enjoy it? Simple as that. And um, not how is this compared to the last album? How is this compared to Tug of War or Bed on the Run or the Beatles? You know, everybody on this planet seems to want something different from Paul McCartney. Some people want him to be the traditional Paul, Paul more of the 70s. You know, as, as I've said many times, and you've noticed this, all this renewed appreciation for early solo McCartney pre-band on the run, which I find really fascinating. And those very same people, many of them, don't like when he worked with other producers of the time to try to make him sound modern. It's almost like, you know, he's trying too hard to be relevant or to sound like the current artists of today. And they'd rather that Paul was more comfortable in his own zone, you know, there are fans that are that way. Those fans that want the more traditional sounding McCartney gravitate towards a flaming pie or a mm-hmm. chaos and creation in the backyard and don't want to hear press to play driving rain new. You know, <laughs> there are those fans who are like that. Then there are the ones who want him to experiment and try to sound different and not repeat himself. So it's kind of like you said, walking a, a, a fine line between being the traditional Paul and the Paul that's thinking forward. I guess the, the the sense of entitlement does come back there and like people expecting stuff off Paul. And again, I'm lucky because I don't have to worry about what Paul was releasing back in 1993 or what was about to come out in the future because the only albums that have mattered to me in terms of uh, pop culture relevance and my own expectations have been Egypt Station and McCartney 3. So... If I don't particularly like the vibe of an album in my fortunate position as a 20-something in 2021, I can just write it off. Okay, that's just part of Paul's career that wasn't meant for me because he can't make all of these albums for me. So I'm going to... I'm going to be an adult here, realise that he can't always please me, the centre of the universe all the time. And I'm just going to move on with, with my life and listen to the next album and maybe I'll find something there and not freak out and act like the sky is falling just because he hasn't closed the album with a big orchestral number and the third song wasn't a rocker. You know what I mean? It's like, because mm. if he if he did do that, the same people would be saying, oh, well, he's just repeating the formula again. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I admire about him is that he never released Band on the Run 2. Yeah, you know, like, I always kind of, you know, uh, I, I think somebody like, um, regardless of what you might think of him, someone like Meatloaf, who I think was, you mm-hmm. know, great singer, very operatic and so perfect for the songs that he did, did he have to put out Bad Out of Hell too? 
You know, it's like relying on the name of another album. Although some people will say, well, Pipes of Peace is more of a continuation of Tug of War. And people know that many of the songs on Pipes of Peace were from the same sessions, mm -hmm. not all of them, but they roped the two together. But, but he didn't call it Tug of War 2. Yeah, and it's, it's yeah. like M McCartney 2 is not aping off the success of McCartney 1. Definitely not, not at because, all. Yeah, it's just a name in that case, isn't it? Yeah, and it was really fascinating when McCartney 3 came out because there's a 40-year gap between McCartney 2 and McCartney 3, and yet there are a lot of people who are just clamoring for that type of an album, the people that want more of a pure McCartney sound, where he's not working with whatever hot producer there is today, you know? Yeah. And production seems to matter a lot to fans. Yeah. Uh, it's never as important to me as the quality of the songs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people that don't like slickness or polish or trying to sound modern and really are more comfortable with the old Paul, mm -hmm. you know, and this applies to other artists too. You can definitely apply that to to off the ground. Like the production on this album is absolutely stellar. Like very rarely am I so aware of production. Like normally it's meant it's meant to be like special effects. You're not even meant to notice they're there, and that and that's the magic. Whereas with this, I was very self aware of like I'm actually enjoying the soundscapes I'm being offered here. I'm I'm enjoying this other producer's interpretations of what McCartney wants. And I'm even more interested in the fact that this is where McCartney wants to go. This is the, the approved sound that he's going for. And at that moment. At that moment. Oh, yeah, because he because his mind will change in 20 seconds after he walks out of that studio and he'll be and he'll be doing something com hmm. completely new. But just as a very, a very insular one-off unique moment in in Paul McCartney's style and and history. This is a very fine album. It's a, it's 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 also subtly very modern. Uh, I think that also comes comes down to the production choice as well, but not modern in when people kind of moan about the '80s with Paul and they say it sounds like the '80s because to me this doesn't sound like a quote unquote '90s album. It, it still feels very contemporary to a lot of the other stuff he was putting out around the same time. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because. When I listen to Off the Ground, it's not like I say to myself, this screams 1993. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more like production-wise, some of it could have worked in the 70s, mm -hmm. like old-style McCartney. And yet compositionally, I can't hear Paul writing Peace in the Neighborhood in the 70s, you know? No. <laughs> but yet I could hear uh, Looking for Changes in the 70s or... or um, maybe biker like an icon you know like, maybe, biker, biker or, like an icon on london town i like i like the sound of that i do actually yeah uh, but it's uh yeah there's a big contrast production wise between this and flowers in the dirt which was a much slicker sound mm -hmm. even though he had a lot of different engineers on the album i still think flowers in the dirt consistently sounds the same production wise but there's a huge difference in the production sound of flowers versus off the ground. And I think for people that don't care for the 80 sound and slick production, yeah, off the ground is probably more to your liking than flowers is production wise. So. And on the mention of flaming pie, I think we are going to bring the episode to an end there because we dare not talk, talk about our next future.
hopeful collab- collaboration because I definitely do want you back to help me with the next album as well, Ken. There is no one else who I would want to do this with. I'm so grateful and I feel so fortunate that I get you to have uh, as a co-chair just on the album reviews specifically. I remember mm. back back when we were going to have you on for uh, the Pipes of Peace episode and that just devolved into a three-hour digression and... <laughs> You know, I'll, I wouldn't I wouldn't have it any other way. I really wouldn't, Ken. Thank you so much for helping me discuss off the ground today. Of course, links to all of Ken's stuff are going to be in the links down below. But just before we go, uh, what's what's coming up both on your channel and on your various other podcasts, radio shows, projects? Okay, well, the, the newest uh, Things We Said Today podcast, we reviewed the McCartney-Rick Rubin docuseries, McCartney 321, The Next Talk More Talk which is this coming Monday, which would be the 26th of July. We're going to do the same thing. Awesome. You can hear me repeat the same thing in both shows, but like with different stereo. co-hosts. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we got that going. My show, Every Little Thing, I just produced a show where the last segment is a tribute to the concert for Bangladesh, which, as we speak, August 1st, marks its 50th anniversary to the day. When that happens, I'm sure that we're going to be doing stuff for both those podcast shows, things we said today and talk more talk for all things must pass for the box set when that comes out. Mm -hmm. That's what's on the horizon there. And then there's my YouTube channel, Ken Michaels Radio, where I've done lots of interviews with especially a lot of podcasters like yourself. We've done a couple of shows and I'm sure we're going to do more. And I do love that show. I would always recommend to people because it's a hot topic to me about the Paul, whether or not he was lost in the 80s. I love doing stuff like that. And you were a great guest to come on and talk about that with me. Um, So we did a show on that not that long ago. But, um, you know, certain people like uh, Hudson Ranney was on, Ethan Alexanian, Tom Hunyadi. I also had... The Power Pop Guy, Jonathan Pushkar, on my YouTube channel. He just um, recorded a new version of Junior's Farm with Jeff Britton on it. And uh, Danny as as well. Yep. And uh, I've had him, and I just interviewed Alan White, the drummer for Yes, who's been Mm -hmm. with Yes for almost 50 years. And the reason I interviewed him was because he drummed. He was one of the drummers on All Things Must Pass. And he also worked with John uh, on uh, Instant Karma, the single, The Lyceum Borum Show in December of 1969 that uh, you'll hear on the Sometime in New York City album and, of course, on the Imagine album. So most of the conversation is about All Things Must Pass uh, for time limitations. And we talked a little bit about working with John towards the end and the plans for Yes as a band. They have a new album coming out. So that's my newest interview, and there's going to be plenty more coming. Awesome. Folks, this has been another episode of Paul and or Nothing. I have been joined by the indomitable, the powerful, the irreplaceable Ken Michaels. This has been an incredible chat about Off the Ground, an album that I do employ to go back out right now and re-listen to. You owe it to yourself. It's fantastic. But yeah, I'm sure Denny Lane has already been playing us out by now. Keep listening to to Paul, everyone. Peace and love, peace and love. No autographs. Play us out, Denny. (laughs) 